your choice, man. Walk away now, you won't get your ass kicked. Should've stayed down, Jack. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps hello everybody i am josh wiggler i am joined here by mike bloom and we are here to tell you that if you turn away from the podcast now you will get your ass kicked i don't know by who mike and i are not physically capable uh but please just stay with us don't leave please do happy to be here josh much like rats often return to our holes we have (laughs) returned to our studios to record i think you can pretty much you might not want to turn your back but if you do you're probably going to turn back and hear josh and i talking about lost in some capacity or any sort of island-based show it seems over the past several days if anyone's podcast feeds are to be considered Yes, we are being very uh, selfish. We want you all to ourselves. We have released, I don't know how many, like, multi-hour podcasts in just, like, the last seven days. Uh, if you're a Survivor fan, there's a lot of fun Survivor content from Mike and I over at RHAP, both in terms of the announcement of Survivor Island of the Idols. We did a podcast about Survivor South Africa right here on Post Show Recaps and in your Down the Hatch feed. We recently had... Uh, uh, we recently had our first episode of the Lost RPG, Tales from the Island, uh, as Mike Bloom and I played the roles of two idiot survivors of the wreck of Oceanic 815 in the first episode of what will be a uh, semi-regular, I would say a highly irregular, but like, uh, you know, a continuing odyssey here in the Down the Hatch journey uh and of course white uh white rabbit coming your way today we are talking about the uh first ever full-on jack shepherd centric episode of lost on down the hatch so we are competing for your attention and hopefully uh we are doing better than jack is doing in uh, a, a battle when he is just a boy hopefully we are fighting a little bit harder and more successfully than that Yes, uh, and listen, for a back surgeon, dude likes to find himself on his back a lot. Maybe that's why he chose his profession. I know he said he was born into it, but you'd have to imagine that he's been thinking a lot in his back of, I wonder how much of this consists of angel hair spaghetti, and how can I get a, <laughs> an inside track into seeing that goodness? Yeah, what if, if if Jack's entire childhood was spent just getting his butt kicked and getting like flattened out on his ass, uh, right on his back, uh, eating tons of angel hair pasta as a kid that was like all his father and his mother would cook for him and uh he had like this really serious 
interest in uh, toy airplanes. Mm. And that's like, that's what leads us to the Jack Shepard that we come to know. And some of us come to love. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit I lost a little bit of, you know, believability there when you said that Jack would be eating angel hair pasta. You know, the shepherds only make a vodka sauce based pasta considering <laughs> their afflictions. Well, maybe it's angel hair with vodka sauce. It's not unheard of. I guess I feel that's more of like a light butter sauce, though, with the angel hair, right? It depends. I suppose it depends on uh, how you're saucing it. But we are going to be saucing you all up <laughs> all over the place here as we go. This feels like the, the audio hatch. equivalent of us pinning down Kate like a Sawyer and being like, ah, I had a dream that I'd sauce you up audio wise. Oh, hopefully, hopefully not quite as aggressively as that. Uh, but maybe that's how you feel. But this is Down the Hatch, a lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps where we are going through every single episode of lost in full spoilerific detail uh you can subscribe if you have not done so already at down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com we'll take you to our podcast feed on apple but you can find us in your podcast app of choice your ratings your reviews are so greatly appreciated as we continue to try and draw people to the island and listen to our shenanigans you've all been so so kind uh along the way we really can't tell you how much we've appreciated all of the feedback we've gotten which we'll get into later on in the show uh, a quick note at the top here is you may notice that we're going to do things a little bit differently today your runtime probably advises you that we're not doing things too drastically <laughs> differently yeah the uh, going with another medical analogy the skeleton's the same i think all the musculature and organs are going to be swapped around a bit just a, just a tiny bit we're going to test some stuff out much as the smoke monster he makes his first really schemey amorphous moves in this episode well we're going to be doing some shape-shifting on our own this week is the podcast uh, uh, Don the Hatch. We're, we're continuing to evolve here along the way. So let us know what you think. If you notice what we're doing, we won't, we won't spend too much time harping on structural changes around here. If you've noticed any of the moving parts, if you like it, let us know. Down the Hatch at PostureRecaps.com is our email address for all of your feedback, including structural notes, anything like that. We would greatly appreciate. Uh, this is the point where I remind you once again that this is a spoiler-filled podcast, full spoilers for Lost, our fair game in this podcast. Uh, we will stop it with the spoiler warnings fairly soon, I promise. We are still just, we, as we are getting more people involved, we're going to keep them up front for the next little while. Uh, if you have not yet watched Lost, first of all, do that. I recommend you watch Lost, and then you can come back and you listen to this podcast. We're going to be here for the next little while. But if you want to watch a show uh, that is not about uh, a magical island with smoke monsters, but you do want something fantasy-oriented, we've got the show for you. It's Carnival Row! Yes, Carnival Row! The new fantasy series that is currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video, the one-hour fantasy drama starring Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne. Uh, Mike, are these people related to you by any chance? They're all related to me, Josh. That's Everybody. my secret. I'm always related to Carnival Row. <laughs> yes, you are. All right. Carnival Row, let me tell you about it. It's a series set in a Victorian fantasy world filled with mythological immigrant creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the empires of man. They struggle to coexist with humans, forbidden to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando Bloom plays Rycroft Philistrate, also known as Philo, who's a police inspector investigating a string of gruesome murders 
threatening the uneasy peace of the row. Cara Delevingne plays Vignette Stonemoss, who's a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Berg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. But even in darkness, hope lives as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair despite an increasingly intolerant society. So that's Carnival Row. It's available for you right now on Amazon Prime Video. Go check it out and meet all of Mike's family. Yeah, that's an easy way. You know, as podcasters, I feel like we like to divulge certain personal details. Uh, I might get into some a bit of that spoiler alert over the course of this podcast. But if you want Ooh. a quick and easy way to meet the Blooms, I just watch Carnival Row. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice way to do so, even if they are playing different characters. A bit of essence of the bloom sneaks through. Okay, all right. So Carnival Row, go check it out. As for us, Mike Bloom, we go forth into the jungle here on Down the Hatch. And we are talking about White Rabbit this week. We are talking about White Rabbit, which is episode five of Lost. It is the first episode censoring exclusively in flashback form on Jack. Jack Shepard. We have to go Jack. <laughs> yes. And I do believe actually from what I was reading that, you know, I believe Lost got picked up for like an initial 13 episodes, which I feel like by today's standards feels like it could be cut up in half and put into two separate seasons considering the show. But after White Rabbit was really the turning point of the series, much like it might be the turning point for Down the Hatch in terms of format where it got picked up for a full season so something about this story, as they were as they were producing it yes something about okay. this story just made abc's uh you know ears perk up a tiny bit maybe like a white rabbit to say you know what we got to see this first season the whole way through okay well hard hard not to after i can't imagine it was a walkabout uh they saw a walkabout and they weren't hooked uh but i'm glad that they were hooked as of white rabbit and speaking of hooks that's the last name of the director of the episode kevin hooks <laughs> kevin hooks is the director of white rabbit he is a he is a prolific uh prolifically involved in prison break uh which is uh i don't think that we're going to be uh doing uh, a down the hatch on prison break of all the candidates for what will take over lost down the hatch when we arrive in 2036 uh at the conclusion of this adventure i don't think prison break is on that short list uh but i just never get really a chance to tell people how much i loved prison break i don't know if you ever watched it mike but it, it, near and dear to my heart so we're not going to do prison break in the cell <laughs> yeah, in, into the cell into the cell i don't think is going to be happening uh white rabbit written by christian taylor uh the only lost writing credit for christian taylor the christian taylor would go on to produce a few more episodes of season one as a supervising producer uh christian taylor has also written for six feet under teen wolf Luke Cage, a bunch of other TV shows. As far as getting, like, one writing credit on Lost, um, I, th I feel like Christian Taylor might have, like, the best hit record. <laughs> one for one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got batting a thousand here with White Rabbit, uh, an episode that features a bat here and there. Uh, so uh, good for you, Christian Taylor. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. L I I'm sad that, you know, in the myriad Jack flashbacks or flash jacks that we're going to get in the years to come, both on this podcast and the series, sad to not bring him back, considering this really is a Kickstarter for not only Jack's flashbacks, but I feel like there's a lot of touchstones of Jack's entire character nestled over the course of this episode. But you know what? He got the ball rolling and everyone else decided to pick up that big old boulder and keep on rolling it over the next five years. Okay. This originally aired October 20th, 2004, and we are coming to you almost 15 years later talking about 
White Rabbit. And I know we'll get into all the episode ratings and everything like that at the end of this podcast. And I know that we just finished talking about how Walkabout is in the conversation for the single greatest episodes of Lost. But here we are, Mike, at White Rabbit. And I'm going to posit that this should be in the conversation for one of the best episodes of Lost as well. Wow. Personally speaking. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to say that for a lot of different episodes yeah, I was of gonna Lost. It's going to become like so like just watered down by the end of it that essentially that opinion is going to be drowning on its own and needs to be saved. How, how about this? I, I think uh, I think as an episode, this maybe doesn't have like that same wow factor that uh, walkabout has it doesn't have like a huge twist in the way that walkabout does um but this is such an emotional episode it is such a character driven episode for a lot of different people not mm-hmm. just for jack but very prominently for jack it's a seminal episode of lost it is a foundational episode of lost moments from white rabbit are going to be utterly critical to the themes of lost overall i think to, to there's there's really no way for me to understate the importance of this episode i think it's one that we'll spend a good amount of time uh chewing on not just in this podcast but i think the ramifications of of what happens existentially not just literally but what is happening for for the characters in this episode internally uh is going to matter so so much for where we're going and i always love revisiting white rabbit and it's an episode that i enjoy more and more every single time i revisit it this episode no exception this time through. It's a very important episode. I completely agree. Obviously, live together, die alone is the main component of it. I think sort of uh, that overshadows things like I saw into the island, the island, which uh, I, I, you know, I think maybe some people maybe do a bit of a Mandela effect in that they assume that sort of comes later on once Locke starts getting into the hatch of it all. But no, it comes very fresh from his encounter in Walkabout. And that, like you said, is a very pivotal quote that really defines what Locke's relation to the island is, at least initially. And to your point before, I really like how much of a surprising uh, ensemble episode this is. I think, again, the memory is a lot of Jack's focus on leadership, which obviously is pivotal. But, you know, we're going to get Charlie Clare scenes. We're going to get Kate, Saeed, and Sawyer doing stuff. You know, Locke's going to have his own little bow, and he's going to merge paths with Jack as well. It really seems like this episode, this just feels like a very solid season one episode. Like, this feels like quintessential season one, where there's a really strong focus around one character, but there's so much other stuff that's really you know, uh, building out the tastes of the ensemble that really every scene just has a lot of great stuff to it. All right, let's get into the episode itself. Uh, White Rabbit, it begins, as you heard at the top of this podcast, young Jack Shepard getting his keister kicked in as poor Mark Silverman is really getting it. Uh, these This pair of bullies is just going to town yeah, knock on off Jack Scott and Farkas. his buddy Mark. I know it really is Scud Farkas to the max, a modern day Scud Farkas, or I guess it's probably like uh, 70s, 80s, something like that, uh, as as Jack and poor Mark Silverman are just getting ruined by these guys. And even as a kid, Jack's going to Jack, right? Like he's told, <laughs> hey, uh, well, he's told, he's told that he should not get up, stay on the ground. Jack, if you stand up, if you try to defend your friend, it's a fruitless effort and you're just going to get flattened out again. But don't tell Jack what he can or can't 
do. So Jack's going to get up anyway, and Scud Farkas is just going to clock him in the face and say, you should have stayed down, Jack. I wonder if Jack is someone who obviously surgeons listen. I know listen to a lot of music. I've seen enough nip tuck to know that. Do you think that Jack's life philosophy is essentially tub thumping by Chumbawamba? How much nip tuck have you seen? <laughs> um, unfortunately, a good amount of it. Really? Yeah, and I am not. Luckily, they instituted the thing, which is the reason I know about the music, is because usually what Ryan Murphy would do was whenever they'd put on the music, that's a cue to be like, hey, if you're squeamish, a.k.a. Mike Bloom, look away for like two minutes because they're going to basically show surgery being done. So, I mean, I couldn't stay away from all of the insane soapy elements that came out of the show eventually. So, wow. you know, despite the vices that made me almost repulsed literally to the show, uh, there were certain things that drew me into it. So it was a, it was a mixed I bag. had no idea. Had no idea. I guess we can put Nip Tuck on the short list of things to, to tuck into when we're done with Lost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a deep cut, quite literally. Yeah. Deep cuts, deep cuts with Josh Wiggler and Mike Bloom coming out in 2057. Uh, in the present, <laughs> in the present, uh, from uh, we come out of you should have said down Jack to someone calling for Jack in real time on the island. It's Charlie and Charlie is coming to Jack. There's an emergency. Uh, problems have occurred on the beach. Somebody is out there swimming, calling for help. Uh, it's going to be, uh, we know that a woman named Joanna is going to be out there and Charlie's going to say, I, I'd go out there, but I don't swim. I don't <sighs> swim. And I know we're going to get into that because there's some continuity wonkiness potentially with the fact that here's Charlie Pace saying, I don't swim. And yet the entire ending of his storyline will hinge upon the fact that he is like an elite swimmer. Um, I feel like we'll be able to talk that through. I know we have a lot of questions about that, about that in, the, in the feedback. But if you've got any thoughts right now, Mike, feel free. Well, this is something that we talked about online. And we'll focus on the Charlie stuff because I think that we can canonically explain it. I don't think that betters Charlie's character in any way. In fact, it might worsen it. Spoiler alert. But I think you brought up a good point on Twitter, as, as I think it was Jessica Sterling who brought this up to us, that yes, Charlie is the one who's sort of highlighted right now as someone who, from a characteristic perspective, might have shirked his responsibilities and possibly saved a life. But also, there's an entire beach full of people who could have swam out. And it really made me think, because... Nobody does anything! They're all just standing there! Yeah. Literally everyone! And that Except made for me, Boone! And that made me think, I mean, I really think that the survivors of Oceanic 815, I think our fuselage crew, is a bunch of gawkers. I mean, yeah. look back to the Saeed Sawyer fight in Pilot Part 2. Even look later on in this episode, when Charlie's about to uh, pull a Scott Farkas on Boone and throws him into the sand. Nobody's breaking it up or helping. Everyone's just sort of standing around and watching until Jack has to come in every time and break up the fight or go on swim. I mean, I know that Jack is really going to uh, push away the advances of, of, of leadership, especially in the first half of this episode, but... I mean, they're basically inviting him at this point to be like, we don't know what to do. I, right. you, you have to do it. It's just, I mean, it's the bystander effect to the uh, most life-shattering circumstances. Yeah, So, but it's not just Jack. Uh, Boone is trying to make an attempt at this as well. This is probably going to inevitably uh, end up being a little bit of an LVP episode for Boone. I'm sure he's not going to get out of our 23 points unscathed in that regard. Uh, but points to Boone for at least trying. He's the only person other than Jack that goes out there to find Joanna, but Boone does not have the stamina to to go out and reach Joanna. He he makes it only so far. Well, I'm 
Jack do- it makes me yeah. wonder though because you know Jack does this does this thing where he like stops for a portion of time and I will say this this first part of the scene I would have pulled for eight sounds but it's really mostly visual uh, it's pretty intense especially for someone as you know Josh who has a bit of a fear of open water uh, I like do know this about my you. worst yes. nightmare uh, but Jack stops for a portion dives down and picks up Boone for some reason I had this almost cartoonish image of maybe if some people did swim out and they just kept drowning like lemmings going off a cliff and Boone yeah. is just the most recent person that Jack was able to couch who followed like five other people in front of him to try to p- pursue this poor woman Joanna yeah, and Boone, not unlike a lemming, will go off a cliff at some point later on in season one. To be fair, uh, so will Jack in this episode. So. Yes, that's right. <laughs> There's a lot of cliff jumping in this episode. So Jack finds Boone. Boone's like, did you get her? Did you find her? She's still out there. And that's when you realize that there's more than just uh, Boone out there. There are two people who are out there. Uh, and Boone is the one who's insisting, leave me behind. I'll be okay. Jack makes the call that that's not all right with him. He's got it. He has Boone in his arms. He's going to make the decision to save who he knows he can save. Uh, that's, you know, that's the, the old Christian shepherd way of doing things, right? You have to, you've got what it takes if you can make those kinds of hard calls. Jack has what it takes, according to his dad, probably in this moment. When he scoops up Boone, he brings him back to shore. Uh, lots of really fancy camera work from, uh, from the lost crew here as he's bringing Boone back. And there's Kate and everybody to, to scoop up Boone as Jack gets back out there. And everyone's like, what are you doing? He's like, she's still out there. Like, yeah, but you're exhausted. It's like, yeah, well, maybe you could help me, but you're not. <laughs> so I got to do it. Someone's got to do something. Uh, and I do love. Somebody's got to do this. Somebody's got to swim. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, no, we all just ate. Sorry, we have to wait 30 minutes. Uh, sp- yeah, they have the boar cramps. Yeah, all oh, those poor boar cramps. Uh, speaking of cinematography, there's a really interesting end to the first act here where as Jack does attempt to swim out once again, we see all these damn gawkers standing on the beach, but in the foreground is the wreckage of Oceanic 815, which again, I feel like it's a great just microcosm visually of the fact that here's everybody you know, not doing anything, having to watch Jack, who sort of takes sole responsibility for everything, which, as we know, is a fatal flaw of Jack as a person, especially before the island. And the wreckage being in the foreground is just a big representation of the fact that this is their immediate concern. You know, yeah. they're all relying on him for their survival, Joanna included. And that's going to be the major tenant and the major piece of pressure that causes Jack to run into the jungle. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Jack... He goes out. The, the, the Giacchino score is ramping up. Uh, it's just like, it's really, really intense. And things are just going like, and it's just like, really like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And you don't get to see what happens. You just slam to uh, the, the ethereal lost title. Uh, it's just like swirling in the air. And then when we get back to the episode, the tone really tells you how that played out. Uh, it's very grim. Boone is sitting by the edge of the beach and he's just staring out at the ocean. Very emo. Uh, Jack is back on the beach already. He's like sorting through things. Like he's not quite catatonic, but he's obviously like not feeling like uh, super chatty. Uh, and so it's at that point where like you're like, okay, so clearly that did not go so well. Um, so Jack's going to meet up with Kate and she's going to like give him the scoop that her name was Joanna. She wasn't supposed to be on the plane. She went swimming in the, you know, she was she was on like an expedition to the Great Barrier Reef. For some reason, I'm imagining Frank Lapidus at home being like, oh, my God, that was supposed to be my seat. She took my yeah. seat. 
Right. I mean, so she's she went she went off to the Great Barrier Reef. She got an ear infection. She was told like you should probably not be swimming around anymore because of the ear infection. She must have gotten bored. She's like, I'm just gonna go home then. And so she wound up on <laughs> she swam home. <laughs> Yeah, she she swam back to uh to Sydney from the Great Barrier Reef uh, and got on Oceanic eight fifteen. And here here she is. Uh, because of that decision, she ends up dying just offshore of the island. And Jack's going to take it very hard for a few reasons, but one of which is like, I didn't even talk to her. I didn't even know her name. She's been here. We've been here for days. And I, I never I never I never met her. Uh, it's like, well, Jack, you know, there's a lot of you out here and you have been rather clicky at this point. Uh, it seems like you're really only talking to like Kate and Hurley and Saeed mostly and then like some scuffles with Sawyer here and there. You probably could have tried a little harder. Yeah, and have you even smiled once, Jack? Bring a little levity here. Well, speaking of tried, there is a really interesting exchange here where Kate says, you tried. And Jack says, no, I didn't. I didn't. And yeah. we're going to get a good glimpse here, Josh, that Jack takes things very, very hard on himself i know you said that his dad would be proud of the decision that he made but i think the emotional repercussion that he's dealing with completely invalidates that statement yeah he says i decided not to go after her uh and after he has made uh that decision to confess that to kate he's looking out at the ocean and out in the ocean speaking of cinematography such a beautiful shot of uh you know this we're, we're pulled back quite a distance but there is a man in a suit standing in the water of course uh, we know that to be uh, kind of, sort of Christian Shepherd, but not actually Christian Shepherd. That Will the real some... John Terry please stand in the ocean? It, it is at least the real John Terry. Uh, but if you take the man in black at his word, several seasons from now, uh, several hours of lost away from this moment, he will insist that he was the man that Jack was chasing all of those years ago, searching for water, and he was gonna, uh, he was trying to lead Jack. To water. Whether or not you take that story at face value, I do buy, of course, that this is the man in black, that this is the smoke monster. We know that Christian Shepard is dead. Uh, I guess we don't totally 100% know that Christian's body is on the island, though I think that you can, you can fairly assume based on the rules of the smoke monster. Uh, but much of this episode, for, for me, has gained its power in being able to view it as the smoke monster really messing with Jack mm -hmm. and testing him. And certainly in this moment, uh, Jack is, Jack is feeling that he's definitely feeling like the, the beginning stages of just how raw he is going to end up feeling throughout this episode. And not to mention that, as you said, he's been very sleep deprived. I don't, we don't exactly get an explanation as to why he's been so exhausted, whether it's because he's worked himself to the bone trying to help everybody or whether he's been so quote unquote haunted by his dead father that that's caused him to stay awake. Maybe it's a combination of both, but if it is the latter, then yeah, it totally ties into this idea that again, by the quote unquote rules, the man in black can't directly, you know, impact the candidates, but it can certainly do things to make the candidates behave in certain ways. And you'd have right. to feel like this is to quote a later episode, the long con where I know that this character is important to Jack. I'm going to manipulate him to have him maybe do certain things, maybe go over certain things to put his life and sanity uh, in mortal risk. And I think that we can definitely track this over the course of the episode. I do think there might be a turning point for this character in terms of, of shifting moods and mentalities at a certain point. 
Okay, cool. Um, so we're we're going to note that there's a, there's there's a water problem, uh, and there's some there's there's a what what I love about this episode is there's a lot of like little great private interactions, like interpersonal interactions that are not massively essential to like storylines in this episode, but are, are, are really great flourishes for the characters and are really fueling the overall theme. Like everybody's is thirsty. You know, one of one of the one of the the the, the key elements of survival, water is at risk right now, or they're running out of ways to hydrate themselves. They are really at risk of uh of being in, in very poor health. Uh you know, one survivor in particular who is going to feel that the hardest of anybody else. Um, but I, I just I just love and I, I think that this episode does it in a way that we haven't even really gotten in in quite a way yet on Lost. Like these these moments where you just see uh, strangers meeting and interacting for the first time or or family members just having these really great moments together. Like Michael and Walt are going to be brushing their teeth. Uh, and Walt's like, son taught me how to brush my teeth. Like she told me what to do. And he's about to like drink the salt water. And Michael's like, don't do that, man. Just don't do it. Uh, and, and like you get this like moment of like Walt uh, very reluctantly listening to his father who he barely respects. You, gr- you get a great moment where Jin and son are together and we're just one episode away from knowing son's secret that she understands everything that's going on but she's watching michael and walt from a distance and Jin is telling her like uh you need to be drinking more water you're clearly dehydrated and Jin is like everything's gonna be fine don't worry and son's like maybe we should try and like interact with everybody else and she's like nope don't want to hear that i'll tell you what to do uh, I just love the, the, these li- little early shades that we were getting of everybody. I think that these scenes are fantastic. Well, you also need to remember that, you know, we have some very unique circumstances in that I know that we've made a lot of comparisons between Survivor and Lost. Hell, we did a podcast about it very recently. But I think that while Survivor takes the concept of 16 to 20 strangers who don't know each other coming together, there are pre-existing relationships here. And while there are, you know, we're going to see with Charlie and Claire later on, sort of a, a two strangers coming together and comparing their lifestyles, like you said, there are already relationships that are, you know, coming into new, either, you know, completely uh, building new values from it or just repeating the same old beats. It feels like Jin and Sun might be the former where, you know, Sun says, when will someone tell us what to do? And I'm like, Sun, I think you need to look in the mirror for a hot second because you've been living that for a while. You already have a built-in leader. Whereas Michael and Walt, you could see Michael trying to, again, especially post-lock, trying to get in good with his son, trying to be a Mr. Wizard of like, I don't know why you shouldn't drink seawater. You probably just shouldn't do it so that's going to be some things that have really uh you know i've always really loved about the characters of lost as well as much as it is to see you know uh hurley and jack two people from different walks of life interact with one another it's really cool to see two people who know each other how they interact in this situation especially as the uh havoc and danger of the actual plane crash itself dies down and maybe some more survivalist worst case scenarios come up as you see here uh i'd say different tendencies that these people get to come out as we see over the course of this episode where uh, you know michael and i think this is sort of a wrap on michael and walt sands walt's fun line the pregnant lady fell down but uh <laughs> yeah more yeah. more com- more complicated stuff from Jin. You know, more shades of gray from Jin where he's going to have this scene, but then he's going to be the one later on to barter the fish with Sawyer to get the water that he feels like Sun needs. 
Right. Speaking of bartering with Sawyer, uh, this is always a, this is always a scene that I I've, I have adored this scene forever just because of like the, the dialogue that is exchanged and just how much of a scoundrel Sawyer is. Again, we're just like tracking early Sawyer and there's so little that's redeemable about him at this moment where <laughs> Shannon's coming to him and like she's getting like eaten up by bugs. So she wants like this bug spray with aloe and they're 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 negotiating and they're trading for it. Uh, and so it's like your, your money's no good here. Uh, but it, it start it starts yes. off with 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 a line that I just I, I love so much, which is you're in my light sticks. Light sticks. Uh, yeah. Light comma sticks as in those legs of yours. Uh, so, I love Sawyer. Wow. Sawyer the grammar Nazi is my new favorite thing. Well, it's it's interesting uh, because maybe we're, we're we haven't gotten into like the series Bible stuff yet on Shannon and Sawyer. I think it's in the entry for Shannon, but it's pretty it's it's baked in early on that they I, I think that the writers wanted there to be like a romance story what? between Shannon and Sawyer to some degree. We'll have to consult no, the series Bible again. Said is so much I, so much so much a better. I, you know, I like I agree absolutely, uh, but I think that this is something where like they had a great scene here but clearly shannon was not going to be somebody who responded to sawyer in this way and he eventually says like your money's no good here but then he negotiates for five grand it's like i thought she said money was no good he's like i was i was negotiating he says i'll take an iou something tells me you're good for it Ugh. I, uh, Gross, bro. yeah, I, I, again, this is like, you know, even though we got that one sort of sappy Sawyer moment where he clearly shows remorse for, uh, not shooting the marshal in the heart, we're, we're back to, you know, first two, two and a half episodes, Sawyer. I will also say, Shannon, listen, and maybe this is a bit of fashion watch here, but, uh, if you're having bug problems, take off that neon green skirt and just put on a pair of pants like your friend Kate, okay? It's that Steal easy. Steal another pair of, uh, bell bottoms. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's it's totally her prerogative to to wear the skirt if it's hot out there and if there's bug spray that she can get. And if Sawyer said, I've got bug spray, uh, then then why not? Why not? But she's going to throw it back at him. She's like, nope, I'm not giving you any. I, I owe you nothing, sir. Uh, so she's done. She's out on the negotiation. We get another great interaction. We get the first real meeting of Claire and Kate, two characters who are obviously going to be deeply tied together much later in Lost. And I think that uh, that that's maybe something that uh, was was I, I think it was a hugely surprising development when we get to the flash forwards of season four that Kate is going to be the person who has custody over Aaron. Um, but I, I think when you when you go back and you watch Lost. There was a lot of great material between Claire and Kate that they could draw on, or at least there were enough really good interactions. This is one of them where they're talking about uh, their their horoscopes and their astro- their astrology signs, their astrological signs, and how Kate's a Gemini and Kate doesn't want Claire to do her chart, and Claire's like, oh, classic Gemini. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to do each other's uh, astrology charts today, Mike, but I feel like uh, we've got more important business to take care of. I forgot that Claire was so into this stuff. I mean, the cl- this is why she goes to the psychic, right? I mean, yeah. like she believes this stuff. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the Claire character is Very something that it. we're going to really interestingly track because I feel like, unfortunately, once Aaron is born... We go off a cliff with her to a very, very extreme extent. And I feel like, unfortunately, some of these character beats are lost. I know this is actually going to tie really nicely into a production point, a scrap storyline that we'll get into. But yeah, I really like the scene between these two as well, because I can't really think of 
many scenes where they they come together like this where obviously later on kate's gonna be aaron's foster mother kate's gonna travel back in time and be there for aaron's birth as well and it's gonna end up with claire all kate also making sure that claire gets off the island and onto that plane as the island falls apart so it's an important relationship to track and it all starts here with a bucket hat it all starts here with a, with a bucket hat. I, I, absolutely, I I don't know why that that doesn't come into play more often uh, moving forward in the Lost. That's the that that should be uh, the hat we use for uh, Lindelof winners. Uh, we should put a logo on that. It's and very send practical. That out. I think we want the most beachy hat possible. But speaking <laughs> of beachy, as you mentioned, things are not so peachy. For the survivors. Ah, Mr. Mullen. Yeah, I Mr. Presume. Mullen makes an appearance once more. He's the smoke monster this time. As you mentioned, the water bottle situation is looking grim, but let's get it vocalized here in sound number one of the episode. Here's Hurley and Charlie trying to help organizing a think tank and hopefully filling it with water for Jack, who just seems to want to be anywhere but there to the point where he actually walks away from them. That's it? That's it. How many? 18. People just kind of took what they needed because we were supposed to be rescued, but we weren't. Even if we divvied it up, split the bottles in half, it wouldn't be enough for 47 people. 46. There's 46 of us now. People find out this is all we have left, they're going to freak out, man. The boar's running low until we can catch another one. What should we tell them? I don't know. Maybe we can make one of those water-finding sticks. What should we do with the stuff we got? I don't know. We should put it in the tent, yeah? Maybe the dog can find water. Probably better if no one knows how little is left. I mean, dogs can find pot and bombs, so I'm sure you can find water. You tell the others we're running low. That way we could ration it. Then you can decide. I'm not deciding anything. I'm not (laughs) deciding anything. Which, again, is a very pertinent quote for Jack concerning what we're about to get into and how one person has essentially forbidden him from making decisions. I think it's just a really cool quote. Charlie's got to be pretty excited about the pot and the bombs. It's like, wait, the dog can find pot? <laughs> well, I, mean, I think he's going to say the dog, really the dog can find pot. Uh, I might go swimming very, very soon yeah. just to get rid of certain things. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I guess that's a good point. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm caught. I'm caught. I got I, I to gotta go back to the bathroom in the, in the cockpit. I mean, what, I guess, I guess in blush. terms of the ideas that they were coming up with, between using Vincent and the divination rod to find water, which do you think is more practical? I think using Vincent, because if Vincent is a, a Christian shepherd or the man in black, eventually he's going to say, hey, Vincent, find my son. And Vincent's going to be able to do just that. Uh, I think that Vincent is uh, one of the sharpest, smartest, most talented characters in all of Lost. He could solve all of our problems. Mm, I mean, maybe you could just say, hey, Vincent, find some creepy dolls. And then he'll just <laughs> lean naturally to water as a result. I can't wait to talk about the creepy dolls. Okay, we uh, we have some other things to talk about first. Uh, let's actually activate sound number two of the episode because uh, Jack's saying, I'm not going to decide anything. And Hurley's like, why not? And we're going to find out why not. It's a source from Jack's childhood trauma that's going to tell us exactly why Jack doesn't really want to decide stuff. All right, yeah, here's Jack and Christian post-Farkas. So... You want to tell me what happened? A couple of guys jumped Mark Silverman. A couple of guys jumped Mark Silverman. But they didn't jump you. No. I had a boy on my table today. I don't know, maybe a year younger than you. He had a bad heart. 
You got real hairy, real fast. And everybody's looking to your old man to make decisions. And I was able to make those decisions because at the end of the day, after the boy died, I was able to wash my hands and come home to dinner, you know, watch a little Carol Burnett laugh till my sides hurt. And how can I do that? Hmm? And even when I fail, how do I do that, Jack? Because I have what it takes. Don't choose, Jack. Don't decide. You don't want to be a hero. You don't want to try and save everyone. Because when you fail... So his, historically bad fatherly advice. Yeah, by the way. I was gonna say I'm I'm happy to be taking notes, or I guess not taking notes, <laughs> yes, taking negative right. notes of like just don't yeah. do what Christian Shepherd does. Oh boy! Uh, yeah. I mean, actually, a lot of bad examples of bad parenthood, bad fathers specifically, as opposed to like good mothers over the course of law. So I might be sol though. Angela can maybe take some notes down. The, I mean, the interesting thing about this scene is, especially if you look at it from what I think Christian is trying to intend. The thing that's missing from this scene is right after he says you just don't have what it takes. I feel like the but you can is implicit, but young Jack isn't hearing it. I think if I'm understanding correctly, because this is going to obviously bear out much more once Jack is, you know, working under Christian and is really just fruitlessly trying to fix everyone because now he has this big fear of failure. You know, your dad told you you don't have what it takes, and he's consistently trying to prove himself to the point where it's going to break up a marriage, among other reasons, because he can't fix her except for that one time, but he has to fix other a bunch of other people. But I think what Christian's trying to say here is, in the way that you are right now, you engage things emotionally rather than logically That doesn't work in the medical profession in order to, you know, have what it takes. You have to disengage your emotions. I think that's what he's trying to tell him, but he is not saying in the most literal way. And as a young child who just got the snot beat out of him, Jack isn't taking it the same way either. And unfortunately, that just that discrepancy leads to the unfortunate attitude he has now. Yeah, and I think also like, you know, the the problem drinking is clearly starting uh very early on for Christian and that's a bad some bad modeling for for Jack, which is something that ends up tracking across the series is Jack developing his own drinking problem. The steps uh, like the the early stages of that even established as far back as the pilot, right? When he like, it's not a strong enough drink. He needs Cindy to give him the extra bottle, uh, on the flight. Uh, and so just like the, the things that you, that you, the things that you teach your kids by accident, you know, mm-hmm. maybe like by, uh, you know, n- not even thinking about it, um, very, very fully on display in the scene. I also think that there's, there's a line here that Christian says that, um, I, I don't think it, it, it took until this watch through to think about how it fits with, with Jack's ultimate arc, which is he proves that, yeah, he very much has what it takes. He absolutely has what it takes to save people. He might not be able to save everybody, but when he fails and hasn't saved everybody and has lost certain people, People, he's still able to pick himself back up and weather all of these punches from, uh, you know, a, a, a monster that is going to make Scud Farkas look like small potatoes, right? Like,
like after, you know, three of his friends are going to either blow up or drown in a submarine and he's still going to be able to pull himself back up by the bootstraps and do what needs to be done and save this place at the cost of his own life. Uh, And it's striking me right now that when that happens and among the very final physical mortal things Jack Shepard ever does is he laughs until his side hurts Mm -hmm. as he's on his back staring up at a Jira 316 flying away. No Carol Burnett that he's watching. I'm I'm very Um, sad that the alcoholism carried over to Jack, but not the love of Carol Burnett. (laughs) You know, he doesn't have that to watch in his final (laughs) moments. Um, Excuse me, Cindy, there's no Carol Burnett on the TV. But I just think that it's it's so interesting to me uh, that the, the the way the way that even this moment connects with the eventuality of the Jack Shepard storyline, uh, I think I think is really really amazing. Well, even look at this episode where what else is he doing after Locke th- hurls him back over the side of the cliff? He's laughing until his sides hurt. I think that Jack is embodying concepts of his father. Obviously, he did through certain habits, but I think that you know him and his father are inextricably linked for a number of reasons and that's one other thing you know he he is the hero he's sort of embodying his father's role here and becoming the chief surgeon of the island but what i really got from this time around with jack which i mean admittedly we'll get into this with jack as the character i think that he is sort of the tabula the tabula rasa he sometimes is the bang the, just say it mike say it the way he's living he's christian's living dad, tabula rasa he's living the dad life uh living that dad yeah, life but unfortunately with daddy issues but i think he's someone who can sometimes be a bit of a blank slate especially in like seasons two and three and four of like something happens to jack and here's yeah. how he reacts and we don't see too much of like the faults of jack but this this idea of a fear of failure is something that i really honed into on this time around and i mean this is something that I have very recently come to terms with as my own, you know, for lack of a better term, failure as well. How you catastrophize things, about how everything, it breeds, unfortunately, a sense of perfectionism, which is, I mean, unrealistic. And as a result, you do feel like you're a failure, even if you have to make hard decisions and you know that not everything is going to work out. You feel like in some way you were letting something or someone down, and I have not nearly been in any life or death situations like Jack, but I do sympathize with the mentality he's taken on here in the first five episodes of Lost, where, I mean, he's obviously at his wit's end, but I think he also feels like so many people's lives are on the line and their well-being, and they're all looking to him, and he feels like he cannot fail even one iota, or then he's going to just absolutely collapse. Yeah, lots to talk about here. We'll we'll keep we'll keep going on this because I think there's there's some fascinating stuff to unpack there. Um, back on the island, as we get out of the flashback, Jack's sort of just sitting there, and here comes Boone, who is finally ready to talk. He's really upset. He he's like insisting, like you should have left me. I don't know why you didn't leave me. And Jack's like, well, I didn't. What do you want? And Boone like comes at him and goes, you think you're all noble and heroic? I was fine. I run a business. Uh, I, I, I love that. I love that line read. I run a business. It's so great. I mean, like Boone's a little shit. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a well-meaning, well-intentioned little shit. You know, he in his life thinks that he's the cowboy. He thinks he's the, the all-star. He thinks he's the hero of the story. And again, some uh, fantastic cinematography here where with both Hurley and Charlie and Boone here, it's this just fantastic uh, camera choreography of no matter what, everyone's literally following behind Jack, even when he doesn't want them to be. Yet, yet again, he charges off and Boone's like, I'm not done talking to you. And you see him literally trailing behind Jack, even though he's insisting that he should be the leader. 
everyone's falling in line behind this guy as much as Jack doesn't want it to be the case. It's just so great because Boone really is the red shirt who is trying to will himself into series regular status. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he really insists that he should be uh, he should be on the bridge of the Enterprise in like a named main role, uh, and he's just not that guy. Uh, and, but he will he will never be deterred from that path. He will always view himself as somebody who has to be central, who has to be so important to every single decision, and it's going to get him killed. But it's going to get him killed in a way that's like fairly noble and heroic. At least the pursuit of what it is he's trying to do. Um, so I, I still I'm, I'm behind the Boone arc, even though he's going to look like a, a real bonehead in this episode. Uh, but he keeps going off on Jack uh, and Jack sees his own father once again. He's wearing the white tennis shoes and he goes and he runs off and Boone's like, where are you going? Hey, I wasn't done with you yet. It's like, oh, I'm going to steal all your water while you're gone. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, Jack this is my <laughs> great business idea. Yeah, well, I'm going to sling waters to the thirsty peeps of this island. Uh, but Jack's going to go. He's going to run up to, to, to the jungle. And this time, the man in black is not disappearing. Christian Shepard is staying put. Uh, when he reaches his dad, he's like hunched over in sort of like this really haunted way, right? Like it, it, it is really eerie the way that even Christian Shepard is just like physically positioned. Uh, he's got like this curve to his back uh, and the suit like fits him very poorly. Uh, it's like very baggy and loose on him. And b- between that and the white tennis shoes, it just all looks very, very strange. Uh, and so when Jack goes up, it's like he and we on the first watch anyway are both like we don't know what to expect. Uh, and so when we see that it's Christian Shepard, when we see that it's Jack's father, everybody is just monstrously freaked out by it. And also like, just like the, the, the body movements of how he just like, kind of like pivots on one foot, like a robot and then mm-hmm. pivots away and then just like marches back off into the jungle. It's just so eerie. And I, I just love it. I think it's presented in such a chilling way. And for all the eye stuff that I was talking about in the pilot, there's some really cool stuff going on here and in the next scene that we're about to talk about where Jack also, again, maybe a representation of the fact that he doesn't want to take a leadership position. There's very little eye contact going on with Jack. And compare that to Live Together, Die Alone, where he almost walks around contemplatively looking everybody in the eye as he's talking with them. You know, as everyone's talking to Jack, he's looking away. Even when Kate's talking to him about Joanna, he's looking at the ocean, he's doing other things. And again, maybe that's a concept to pick up from his dad, because up until that moment you mentioned, his dad has his back to him the entire time. And aside from maybe the man in black being a fan of the end of the Blair Witch Project, it's a nice representation of maybe Jack consistently feeling like he, you know, he needs to be in front of his father, but his father's turned his back on him in many ways. Uh, Or the fact that, again, as much as people can't catch Jack's eye, he can't catch his father's eye either. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is not the first interaction between Jack and the smoke monster, um, but it is the it is like it's like post battle. Uh, the first interaction, right? Like the smoke monster and Jack did battle on the second day. Uh, everybody was here on the island. Uh, and and now a couple of days later, the smoke monster has like circled back to Jack. It's like, all right, I've sized up John Locke. Now I got to see what this guy is all about. Cause I caught a whiff of him and he seems like he's really into his own stuff. He's really buying his own hype. Let's see if I can mess 
with him a little bit. Uh, and I guess like we, we know from some of the webisode stuff uh, that, that the monster has its eye on Jack from the moment that Jack reaches the island. You know, he goes off and, and tells Vincent, go wake up my son. Uh, so we, we know that there's at least just in retrospect anyway, in the retconny way uh, that the monster has its eye on Jack from the very jump. Um, but it's just it's, it's great to see them having this interaction, all of the interactions they have throughout this episode. Uh, but that's Jack and his dad. Let's talk about Jack and his mom, mm-hmm. Mike. Yeah, let's talk about Mama. So uh, after that big revelation, we get yet another flashback where Jack talks with Margot, the rarely seen Margot Shepard, Christian's father, or Christian's, Christian's wife, and Jack's mother. And uh, it's a significant time later. Jack is now an adult hoodie and all. And we're going to get a little bit of a standoff between the two of them and a Christian in abstentia. Your father's gone, Jack. Did you hear what I said? He's gone, Jack. He'll be back. This time it's different. I want you to bring him back. What? He hasn't talked to me in two months, Mom. You haven't talked to him in two months. He doesn't want me to bring him back. Trust me. But one of his friends. He doesn't have friends anymore. Why do you think that is? He was right about you. Right about what? You don't understand the pressure that he's... I understand pressure. Jack, please, you know how he gets. He doesn't... He won't take care of himself. You have to go after him. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't? You don't get to say, I can't. Not after what you did. your father home, Jack. Where is he? Australia. Okay. Australia. Yeah, I had to keep that in there just for like the most whispered mention of Australia ever. Australia. Maybe that was one of the whispers was just mentioning all the continents. All right. So which iteration of Survivor is secretly the best one? Australia. (laughs) Which one premiered after the Super Bowl? Australia that all stars. Okay. So maybe, I don't know. I don't know if this is a hot take or not, Josh. And if it is, give me some water. But I mean, is is Marco Shepard kind of manipulative here? With the way that all the... I feel like she's trying so many tactics to get Jack to go to Australia. It seems very transparent to me for the parent. I have a lot of empathy for, for Margot Shepard. I, I think it, it's got to be very difficult to be married to a person like Christian Shepard. And I, I mean, we're both married people, Mike. And I, I was going to tell you I we're think, both uh, married to Christian Shepard. We're both married to Christian Shepard. We're both Shepherd. sister wives to Christian Shepard. Yes, we all know this. You know, when when thing like even even with like the best spouse on the planet, and I would contend that I have the best spouse on the planet. Uh, there are there there are moments of tension, like even even in like the happiest marriage, it can get really intense, uh, and and things are are rarely ever like 
through the line easy all year long or all marriage long, but you have to imagine just the vast amount of speed bumps along the way. Uh, being married to someone with Christian's problem, uh, you would have to be really blind or dense to not know what's going on mm. with Christian. And Jack being as intelligent and capable as he is, got to imagine that's not just coming from his dad. Got to imagine that Margot Shepard is a pretty capable and smart and sharp human being herself. But I feel like there are there are like lies you tell yourself when you're involved, not even just in a marriage, but when you're very, very close to somebody and to like confront those things feels so difficult that it would, it feels easier to let it lie uh, and to and to build lies around uh, to, to protect yourself from having to confront those things. And like I feel a lot of that in the way that Margot talks to Jack, like there's a real sadness there. Um, I think it is manipulative in in many ways, uh, the way that she's talking to Jack here. But I, I can't help but feel horrible about the way she herself has probably been gaslit by her husband and the way that she herself uh, manipulates reality to to fit in with this this idea of um, you know my my husband can't possibly be the the monster that the medical board is making him out to be. We know, of course, that Christian is going to lose his license on Jack's testimony, uh, and we'll get that a few episodes from now. Um, that she like I, I if I if I believe that to be true, then what does that say about me? Like that kind of thing, and I feel like that's hugely relatable. I think it's hugely relatable to anybody who's ever made like a questionable decision. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for Margot, and I especially do when you think about what's happening to her in the moments where Jack is now here on an island searching for his ghost dad, right? Like <laughs> oh, no. she said she guilted her son into going to Australia to bring Christian back. And now for all she knows, not only is her husband dead, but her son died in a plane crash that she sent him on. So, geez, like my heart goes out to Margot Shepard, who we'll see a tiny bit of uh, later on the show. Uh, and I think mostly more uh, season four, maybe a tiny bit of season five, though I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like it would it would have been nice if the show if lost. This is this is a knock against losses. I, I, I wish that they had delved a little bit more into into mothers and, and a mother's impact on their children. There's so much about fathers and their sons and even fathers and their daughters. There's a little bit of mothers and daughters um, in this show with, uh, with, with Kate and her mom. And then a little bit here with Margo and Jack, but there's such an emphasis on like that, uh, that all powerful paternal figure, uh, that I, I, I wish that they'd shared the wealth a little bit. Cause I think that there was a lot of interesting material to mine from Margo Shepard that was left on the floor. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I understand where she's coming from. And obviously the fact that, I mean, she also didn't realize that, you know, Christian admits at one point, like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have married her. So I don't think I think it's unfortunately uh, an unrequited love to the point where Christian's going to have certain pursuits in Australia that he is going after in this moment. I, I just don't know if that's an excuse to pressure your child in that way. Absolutely not. Absolutely not an excuse or a justification. I really just mean it as like, I, I get it. Like, I, I don't endorse it. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good. But I have empathy for where that comes from, from this human being. Right. And we should also mention that the you know what you did uh, or not after what you did is a reference to Jack reporting Christian's alcoholism uh, resulting in the death of a patient. So we're going to get that back that night. Is that going to be in all the best cowboys have daddy? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we're going to get that question answered very.
very soon. But that's yet another one of these flashbacks of like, here's a mysterious thing that you did that we are not going to address until a few episodes <laughs> later. Because yeah. we haven't quite figured it out, but we have a decent idea. We just want to make sure it's totally ironed out before we tell you about exactly. it. Exactly. Um, all right. Back on the island, uh, Jack's going to get up. He's going to march off with purpose in search of his father. But at the beach, this is where we get the great line from Walt coming to Kate. That pregnant lady fell down. Yes, uh, Walt's the life alert here of the island. <laughs> She's fallen and she can't get up. <laughs> the light sticks alert. Uh <laughs> But Walt's coming to Kate and everybody is seizing on the moment. And Michael and Charlie, they're going to they're going to be physically carrying Claire off into the doctor's tent. They need to hydrate her. Nobody knows where Jack is. Jack is gone. Uh, and so is the water. The water is gone. And nobody knows where the water is. Nobody knows where the doctor is. We're going to in, in lieu of Jack being here. We have a new power trio. Uh, John Locke has really earned his stripes uh, having come back to camp with a boar. Uh, everybody's really eager to, to, to bend John Locke's ear. Kate and Saeed were really uh, like the, the vice president and like secretary of defense uh, or secretary of state, maybe mm. uh, in Jack's absence. But here comes this is the secretary of defense. This is the military man, John Locke, who's been brought into the into the crew i just i I love i love terry o'quinn's line delivery all through lost but i just love where is the doctor yes Uh, i'm see for several reasons one maybe he's thinking that he's on gallifrey for some reason he's a big fan (laughs) of the bbc two i love that he doesn't know jack's name that's just so much fun to me that again Locke is sort of off in his own little world at this point he's just starting to socialize exactly he's like uh that guy you know uh doctor i don't know his name where is he he knows people by their roles, right? Like, he's probably been very observational. He knows who Walt is. He knows who Michael is. Uh, he probably knows Kate by name now. He knows, you know, uh, he probably, that's probably pretty close to it. Um, you know, if he's been, but he's been observing. A lot of people have been talking to each other with nicknames. Uh, yeah, so you know, that's probably, probably very confusing for Locke. <laughs> You know, he knows Vincent, uh, but does he know Jack yet? Maybe not, you know, but he knows he, he knows he's the doctor and he knows he's important. And I think that Locke knows uh, that this is a man that needs to be uh, he needs to bond with, that this is somebody who's important to this group. Uh, I, lo- I, I love when he says uh, things are going to get ugly when people find out there's no water and when they find out someone's pinched it. It's going to get uglier. Yeah, I don't know uh, what, if people were watching, like, film noirs on the plane because we're going to get this. We're going to get Charlie being like, some geek nicked all the yeah, water. Yeah, I, I love the way people talk about thievery in this episode. Uh, just so many great different ways of saying he stole it. Yeah, exactly. You know? Like, oh, who filched all the H2O around here? Who stole the fizzy lifting drinks? Uh, so Locke is going to say, you guys hang tight here. I'm going to go find Jack. I know where to look. Uh, so he is going to head off into the jungle because after just like less than a week, not quite a week of being here, Locke already knows exactly where to go. If you can catch a boar, you can catch a doctor. That's what I always yes. say. Yes. All right. So uh, we're going to catch up with Jack. He's still screaming his head off, searching for his dad. Where are you? Where the hell are you? And we flash back to Australia. Um, we find out that Christian, he's been missing for three days. Speaking of noir, I mean, I think that there is sort of like a detective yeah. bent to this episode. I, I had the exact same thought in my head of like, this is like the Maltese fact Falcon or the malted Falcon in Christian's case, <laughs> considering how many malt beverages he's taken right. in, where he's like investigating, like, oh, he left his wallet on the dresser. And this poor like hotel concierge is no help. But yeah, it really does feel like a mini film noir in the course of a three minute scene. 
I love it. I think it's so great. And, you know, he's trying to find out, like, where is his dad? He sees, like, all this evidence of his father's drinking in the drawer. There's, like, a bunch of booze bottles. And the hotelier is saying, like, listen, I don't mean to be a jerk here, but I don't think that any rental agency would have given your dad a car in the condition that he was in. But they would give Uh, one to Anna Lucia. Yeah, they might give one to Anna Lucia. Yeah, and some side storyline. Maybe Anna Lucia is like in the in a, in the next room, uh, just like sleeping off a hangover mm-hmm. of her own, or maybe she's off working with Christian at this point. We don't really know. Uh, but back on the island, Jack is just like he's he's got all the color out of his face. He's getting really sweaty. the The Giacchino score is just like goosebump inducing. And Jack sees his dad finally, and he like chases off after him. The camera work is just so good. Uh, uh, and then like it gets like a little bit like network TV, but in a way that is very endearing to me uh, when Jack goes off after his dad and he like trips over a root or something and he tumbles down the hill. He nearly falls over a cliff and there's like these drums pounding as he's hanging there. And it's like our, our first literal cliffhanger, maybe not our first tense cliffside scene of Lost with the Hollywood and Vines of it all. But here is Jack Shepard hanging off of a cliff and we cut to commercial from there uh and when we come back he's still like having like that like ah how am i gonna get out of this one you know it's this sort of like classic tv moment where you know he's gonna be fine but you're entertained and you're engaged by it and mike i swear to god i laugh so hard every single time this happens where you're you're not sure how jack's gonna get out of it you feel like you probably will but here comes a hand and it's like it's it's thing from the from the from the adams family right uh, like Uncle Fester sent Thing off to go and, and save Jack. But no, it's Locke. But he first, it's just a hand yeah. that's very awkwardly coming over. Uh, and it's Locke. And he pulls Jack up. And it's like their first real meaningful interaction. Still no introduction yet. Locke still no still doesn't exchange know his name. names. Still doesn't know his name. But I love this, Mike. This is, again, things that are just striking me on the rewatch this time out that I that I hadn't noticed before. But this is like their first real meaningful interaction, not their first interaction between Jack and Locke, uh, certainly with the, the the announcement of the boar hunt in Walkabout. But this is about to be like the first real sit down between these two characters. And it's going to be Locke pulling Jack off of the side of a cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the way they, they're sprawled out after he, he pulls Jack up, uh, I think really mirrors the way that their final interaction plays out, or at least the final interaction between Jack and Terry O'Quinn on the <laughs> show when he's played by uh, when he's playing the man in black uh and it's like a, a funhouse mirror version of that right here's Locke saving jack from a cliff and jack is going to end up honoring Locke by kicking a man who looks like john Locke off of a cliff in the series finale uh just so many great ways that this show mirrors itself i, I love it so much and i also love the incredible matthew fox laughter after Locke's like are you all right and jack's just like <laughs> it's like i watched some carol burnett on that cliff yeah my sides hurt uh, so good yeah i think that i mean speaking of another man in black interaction i mean i i personally believe that the man in black appeared as christian right there intending to kill jack i think it yeah. was the man in black's intention for jack to do exactly what he did but maybe those vines those hollywood and vines slip out of his hand and he goes falling to his death i think that's how i could see that the man in black wanted to sort of mess him up as a candidate and he wanted to kill a candidate and he did it by making jack essentially dive off the cliff thinking he was going for his father and i think in the scene we're about to get to later with jack and Locke, i wonder if 
the monster's observing him in some way and thinks, okay, maybe I can change tactics here, which will then lead a Jack to water and make him drink. Yeah, because I think it's like, oh, maybe I can't kill him. Ah, oh, shit. He's got Jacob protection on. Uh, you know, like there's there's rules in place. Damn it. I can't kill this one. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think like he's te- he's pushing those boundaries or at least you could, you could view it that way. Uh, I, I totally agree. Um, all right. So we'll get back to Jack and Locke in a little bit. Uh, back at the beach. A meet cute. Uh, not the first interaction between Charlie and Claire, but this is like the this is the evolution of where they were back in Tabula Rasa uh, when they were when they when they first. <laughs> I like they how they first adopted a southern accent. I love it. it. I love it. I love it. Tabula Rasa. I I don't know if you're an always sunny guy, but I always loved how they say Maureen Ponderosa. Yes, yes. Uh, Tabula Rasa. Uh, well, but uh, speaking of Charlie, gonna, yeah, let's yeah. Get, let's get into it. Let's get let's get into Charlie and Claire here because this is fun. Hey. Hey. How long have I? A couple of hours. Yeah. It's not much, but it's what we have. You just relax. Think about the little one now, yeah? Thanks for the water, child. There'd be more if some git hadn't nicked it. Is Jack back yet? No. No one's seen him. But I wouldn't worry. Good old Mr. Locke's gone into the jungle to get some water for you. Great. Our only hunter's going to get eaten just so he can get the pregnant girl some more water. I wouldn't worry, love. I mean, you tell me, who would you rather meet in a dark alley? Whatever's out there on that geezer with his 400 knives. Mm. I mean, who packs 400 knives? Personally, I can only have space for 200, 300 at most. When are they going to rescue us? Sam. Thanks, Charlie. For what? People don't seem to look me in the eye here. I think I scare them. The baby. It's like I'm this time bomb of responsibility just waiting to go off. You don't scare me. I really like how they linger in time there, Josh. I would even say they take some pregnant pauses, if you mm. will. Yeah, yeah. I don't like how everybody keeps talking about bombs around Charlie. Because, <laughs> uh, like, that's going to be a big deal for him someday. You know, he's not going to blow up, but if not for a bomb, maybe he would have made it. That's true. Uh, Though, again, you could also say that around, like, once Juliet comes into the picture, you know, you're like, oh, mm. don't say that around. Don't say Ombe around the Juliet J. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I love this scene. I love Charlie and Claire. I love, I, you know, that they, I think they do lose the plot on Charlie eventually. So I always really enjoy it when we're in the phase where they, they have Charlie as like a prominent character that they're writing well. And he's just at his best when he's like, he's being like a little bit sardonic. Like he's just got a sharper edge to him than Hurley. I think we've talked about this before Mm -hmm. of how like there's a little bit more danger to Charlie Pace than there is to, to Hurley where Hurley is is like happy time Hurley and like when he isn't it's always really really notable 
and great. Uh, but with Charlie, there's there's like a he, he's like a chunky peanut butter, right? Like he's like there's there are those rough edges in the material there, uh, and it's baked into the premise of who Charlie Pace is. And that's even here with how he's talking about that geezer with his four hundred knives, just the total lack of respect in the way he's talking about the only person who's been providing them food at this mm, do you, point. Do you think that Block's going to punch him in the good. face next season and be like, that's what you get for calling me geezer all the way back in season one? I'm so in touch with the island that I even know that you called me a geezer. Uh, and it's not 400 knives, if only it were. <laughs> but I, going back again to this interesting Claire characterization that I feel like I sort of glossed upon looking at her overall arc, just the fact that she has... I mean, I guess sort of pairing with her half-brother here, she has her own sense of failure in that she feels like she's a perennial responsibility. As she says, a time bomb of responsibility that's waiting to go off. She feels like she is a burden for the group, and as a result, that makes her a failure. And I think, you know, she when she actually has her meet you with Carl, Charlie a couple episodes ago, she's like, hey, I'm doing like the single mom thing, you know, very progressive, very woke, right? But I feel like that does speak to Claire's sense of independence and how I think that her collapsing from the heat is actually a very weak moment and probably frustrating moment for Claire because it's like, I want to prove to people that I can, you know, rough it out on my own here that I don't need to be waited on hand and foot. Now I literally need to be waited on hand and foot. How does that make me feel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, this it's a very layered episode uh, because this is a Jack flashback and it's dealing with Jack and his relationship with his dad. But there are ways in which this is kind of engaging Claire's relationship with that same man. Um, you know, if, if maybe like a little in, in a little murkier fashion, but uh, there's just so much here. Uh, it's it's so fun to read this episode when uh, when you've got the full scope of Lost in your mind. Um, all right, so let's move on from Charlie and Claire. And Hurley is going to come to Saeed and Kate, uh, the sheriffs around these parts, as at least Kate will be deputized in just a little while. Hurley is going to say, the Chinese people have water. <laughs> it's like, ah, not, not great. Not great. Uh, of course, talking about the Kwans and Saeed and Kate are going to go to Sun. And Saeed is like, just like repeatedly grilling Sun. Where did you get this? Because she has, she, they do have water, and he's holding the water. He's like, "Where did you get this? Where did you get?" He starts this? grabbing Where for the bamboo. Yeah, and Kate's like, "Stop!" She doesn't understand you. He's like, "She understands me." Uh, and I, uh, Saeed Jarrah, man, human lie detector. He knows. He sees son. She's like, "Oh, she gets it." She gets it. She knows a lot yeah. more than she's letting on. It's body language stuff where he can tell that she understands the sentiment, at least behind what's going on. Uh, I don't know if he like suspects the full story of what's going <laughs> it's on. It's that the she knows English the entire time. She's she she learned English so that she could leave her husband, who's an abusive asshole. Uh, and you see, and she was gonna he, what? she was gonna abandon him in Australia. <laughs> he went to Australia to return a watch from the, the from the, the her father's company, yeah. who was involved in a series <laughs> yeah. of gruesome murders. But he's secretly a very good guy. He just hasn't revealed that side of himself yet. But you'll get a better sense of it in dot, dot, dot in translation just a few episodes from now. Uh, it's great. I just I, Human lie detector Saeed is one of my favorite aspects of any character on this show. And here it is. As he's just grilling Sun and Jin's going to show up. He's like, no, stop talking to her. Obviously in Korean. Uh, and he's going to indicate that it's Sawyer who gave them uh, the water. 
Uh, we'll find out how that happened, or the, Sawyer is the source of the water for them at least. And Kate just wants like get into that. Like let's just go straight to Sawyer. Uh, and it is uh, it is Saeed who comes up with the line that you mentioned earlier in this episode, Mike, where he he tells Kate to like calm down, have some chill, Kate. Uh, it says a rat will always lead you to its hole, uh, which feels like something that our Philly should note as he is constructing uh, the next chapter. Of the lost RPG, oversized rats, rats of an extremely unusual size. Mm. Uh, for I don't a, a know, future I feel like if you mentioned holes around Rodney Sesto, you go in a completely different direction. <laughs> oh no, and rats! Uh, Richard Gere showing up to the <laughs> island. I know it's a different animal, but um, all right. Well, let's talk about the rats and the holes, and that's going to lead us to uh, Sawyer's first of a few secret hideouts, and uh, one of the first secret hideouts that we are going to see on a show filled. With secret hideouts. So this is going to be Kate uh, and Saeed making their move on Sawyer. It's about time. For what? I made this birthday wish four years ago. Where's the water? Get off of me. Give us the water now. Touch me again, huh? You really think I stole your damn water? We know you gave two bottles to the Koreans. I don't give nothing to nobody. It's not here. I traded Mr. Miyagi the last of my water for a fish he caught. We worked it out caveman style. You gave him your last two bottles. Water has no value, freckles. It's gonna rain sooner or later. But hell, I'm an optimist. Hey, you forgot something. Seeing as you're the new sheriff in town, might as well make it official. So we should mention in this clip, Sir gets absolutely bodied by both Kate and Saeed. Like, he <laughs> yeah. gets wrecked, tackled ass sideways, gets farkest, essentially, in the middle of the jungle. Uh, again, not the last time that Sir is going to face a lot of physical harm over the course of this. Not by a long yeah, Over shot, the course yeah. of the season, but so much interesting stuff here. Again, this is sort of like Sawyer scene at the Sawyer store where he's like, I don't believe in this. I go by my own values here. I'm, we're trading things. This is Sawyer's outpost. But I love him giving the Marshall badge to Kate because that has so much weight and so much history to it. And just the fun irony that Kate the criminal is now what Sawyer deems the law enforcement in the camp is just fantastic. Yeah, the new sheriff in town. All right, well, we're at the moment. We're at, like, the moment of the episode, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, And we've already had our first interaction of the episode between Jack and Locke, but this is the blockbuster one. This is the one that is very foundational to the rest of Lost, let alone the relationship between these two men. And I think when you think about Jack and Locke, your mind typically gravitates to the fact that these guys are series-long adversaries. And that's really not necessarily true. Uh, Early on, they are a lot more simpatico than perhaps you remember. And it's really not until Boone dies that things start to really go south between these guys. Um, So we we know where Jack is ultimately headed. We know that Jack is ultimately going to be the guy who carries John Locke's torch forward. Uh, But that feels like uh, a late game 
evolution, but the building blocks of that moment, uh, the building blocks of that character, that, that, that character shift, that heel turn in a way for Jack are really laid out here in the sixth sound of the episode that we'll play now. How are they? The others. Thirsty. Hungry. Waiting to be rescued. And they need someone to tell them what to do. Me? I can't. Why can't you? Because I'm not a leader. And yet they all treat you like one. I don't know how to help them. I'll fail. I don't have what it takes. Why are you out here, Jack? I think I'm going crazy. Well, you're not going crazy. No? No, crazy people don't know they're going crazy. They think they're getting sane. So, why are you out here? Chasing something. Someone. The White Rabbit. Alice in Wonderland. Wonderland because who I'm chasing? He's not there. But you see him? Yes. But he's not there. And if I came to you and said the same thing, then what would your explanation be as a doctor? I'd call it an hallucination. Result of dehydration, post-traumatic stress, not getting more than two hours of sleep a night for the past week, all the above. All right, then you're hallucinating. But what if you're not? Then we're all in a lot of trouble. I'm an ordinary man, Jack. I meat and potatoes. I live in the real world. I'm not a big believer in magic. But this place is different. It's special. The others don't want to talk about it because it scares them. But we all know it. We all feel it. Is your white rabbit a hallucination? Probably. But what if everything that happened here happened for a reason? What if this person that you're chasing is really here? That's impossible. Even if it is, let's say it's not. And what happens when I catch him? I don't know. But I've looked into the eye of this island, and what I saw was beautiful. Wait, where, where are you going? To find some more water. I'll come with you. No, you need to finish what you started. Why? Because a leader can't leave until he knows where he's going. It's outstanding. Ugh. That's one of the best scenes in all of Lost. Yeah. Right there. I mean, it's one of the, it is, it is, it is everything that you love about lost it is the it is a collision of a man of science and a man of faith uh meeting each other in the middle of the night right like laying laying down arms on the battlefield to exchange their philosophies and their ideas and coming to grips with where they are and what they're fighting for and what they're about to be all about uh and it, it's so great that it, it ends 
with the man of science is on a faith mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, The man of faith is on a science mission. He needs to find the water. There's a practical thing that needs to be accomplished here. Um, It's just, it's beautiful. The, 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 just the splendid performances at play here. Again, the line reads from Terry O'Quinn. I'm not a big believer in magic. Uh, the meat and potatoes of it all. Like there's the writing is so good. Christian Taylor, well done, sir. Uh, you know, there's just there's such rich, good material here, and so much of what spins out of Lost uh, spins out from this moment. Yeah, you know, live together, die alone is going to be a very memorable part of this episode. But this is the stuff. This is the stuff. So many. I mean, it really is just a deep, deep jungle of language over the course of this scene. I love all the meaning that's inherent in. Why are you out here? I'm chasing something. Because not only does it refer to their literal moment, I mean, that's Jack's situation that brought him to Australia in the first place. We saw him in the hotel chasing something, chasing his own white rabbit, chasing his father, maybe feeling like there's going to be some sort of reconciliation happening that never truly does. There's a bunch of other different white rabbits that are being, you know, chased around as well. Something that, and, you know, Alice in Wonderland, as Locke sort of evokes here, like you said, it, it's very much the uh, the locative versus the utopian characteristics here of Jack saying, well, Rose talked to me about PTSD, so clearly this is something that is just a hallucination, it's nothing special, and Locke says, no, I'm I'm going to evoke something that is hallucinatory in Alice in Wonderland, but it's something that leads you into a fantasy world. It's something that is very much real. And yes, it might be a dream the entire time, but just because it's a dream doesn't mean it can't be real, to quote another wise old man. What is so interesting as well is that I personally always got a father-son relationship out of Jack and Locke as well, Mm, which might be a little strange because I, I, I feel like they're age is much closer than you know jack and christian shepherd but it's so interesting contrasting this scene with that first jack and christian flashback we saw where in both cases you have the father figure imparting advice onto the younger person but it all depends on the delivery right like Locke is a bit motivational even though he has a bit of a you know he does sort of literally drop him off in the middle of the jungle and say find your way back home which feels like a very christian thing to do He's essentially saying, like, you're not going crazy. You just need to trust the island. When it comes to Locke's infamous quote, I looked into the eye of the island and what I saw was beautiful. Josh, what do you think that's referring to? Because I've gone back and forth personally as to I think a lot of people assume it's his encounter with the monster last episode. But could it be as simple as him referring to his legs being healed as the metaphoric eye of the island? Yeah, I mean, so I, I always, I, I, and I maintain, we talked about it in Walkabout, like, I, I really feel like Lost eventually could have showed us, like, what he saw and how he survived the monster encounter in Walkabout, uh, and that there could have been something to play with there. Uh, but there are people who, like, in the light of the final season think, did Locke see the source of the island? Did he see, like, the cave with the light spiraling out of it? Uh, and I, I feel like it, it's been established to us that you can't just find that place. Uh, you know, you, you really have to know where you're going there uh so Locke couldn't have just like stumbled upon that so i don't think that that's the eye of the island i've always read it as it's like the flashes of the smoke monster 
uh, you know, and he's going to say that to Echo. I saw a bright light when he saw the smoke monster. And it's like the flashes within that and his life is like his sad, sorry life that he saw being like parroted back at him in this way. Uh, but I like your interpretation of it a lot. Uh, I mean, the eye of the island is that like this is a place that will shake you to your core yeah. and change you deeply if you let it. Uh, and trust me, I know. I was paralyzed, literally, not with fear. I was literally thrown out of an eight-story building or the eight stories of a building and landed on my back and could not walk for four years and was in a wheelchair, and now I'm not, and that is as recent as being here on this island. I've stared into the eye of this place, and it is beautiful, my friend. Yeah. Get high on that supply. Uh, I like that interpretation a yeah, lot. That's a, I mean, maybe I'm just going with the more man of science interpretation that he's approaching something that's more literal because I, I still can't really interpret of like he has he sees the monster but like what does that mean for the island you know i yeah. feel like he's speaking more holistically of look what the island did for me i saw it's i i in my mind means true intention it's heart almost in a manner of speaking and it's heart right now is something that can provide something for you and change you for the better. And I do also love the, again, the use of the word I instead of heart in that manner is that we talked about, you know, the I is the truth. And Locke feels like this is the truthful purpose of the island, though he's a bit, he's going to find out soon enough that there are many, many, many other purposes to the island. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they're going to part ways here. Uh, if we could spend seven hours just talking about this scene, I would, but there's still so much business to be done. Uh, but they're going to part ways here and it's going to, night is going to fall. Jack's made a fire. He's staring into the fire. And this is where we get, uh, the flashback where we find out that Christian is indeed dead, that he died. Uh, he, Jack is taken to the morgue. Uh, they find out that, that he's he's informed that Christian had a, a very sizable fatal heart attack, the amount of blood alcohol that was in his system. Uh, and it's very sad. It's like the it's it's you know, it's a it's a really dreadful moment. This is like something that like you lose people in your life right like i'm very scared to meet this moment i'm very lucky that i have not yet lost my father uh I, and just like the way that matthew fox plays it um like it's just it's gripping like the grief that's yeah. there and that that just immediately washes over him uh, yeah and, uh, and i we, mean i'll be completely candid here i mean i i am someone who's has realized very recently that uh, you know my father has struggled with his own alcoholism over the past yeah. few years and it's one of those things where again you get things from different rewatches and i saw it this time around and like i recoiled in shock a bit because again this is something that became very uh latently realized in my life and it's one of those things where like you said sometimes you do end up like projecting your own face in your father's face in that moment and despite the sordid history between jack and christian shepherd that's also really interesting as well that you know despite all the animosity he has towards him jack does cry not only in the morgue but on the island as well thinking about it and i guess you know they never really had a reconciliation christian does admit to anna lucia in that episode we mentioned before he's like i you know i i wish i could apologize to my son and say that i realize he had the best intentions for me but i just i just don't have the will to do it but you almost feel like i don't know maybe jack knew that or maybe you know jack deep down these two did love each other that amidst all these complications and the ill will they held towards one another, there is something about the fact that 
you know, your mind flashes back to him teaching Jack how to play chess or reading Alice in Wonderland to him and, and you know, divulging him into his own white rabbit. Then I'm assuming that all came yeah. flooding back to him in that morgue. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's it just hits him like hits him like a ton of ice cubes. Uh, <laughs> that's not, that's as, not a lot, but it's very cold. It's, it's well, I mean, if, depending on the you know the, the the size of the ice cube, it could be pretty painful. Uh, I've had ice cubes thrown at me, Mike, and it's not pleasant. Oh no, is that your own um, farkas like tail? We'll tell that flashback in a Wiggler. future episode <laughs> of Down the Hatch. No, uh, Lindsay Lohan was involved, and that's not okay. a joke. Okay. Um, okay, so we'll move on from that, and you hear the swirling of ice cubes, right? Like when we come back to the island, and Jack is crying, like as he's meditating on on uh what he's been through and what he's lost you hear the ice cubes uh and that's like the the swirl of the cubes in the glass of whiskey and christian or the man in black or whoever this guy is 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 stalking off behind jack and he goes and he races off after him and the man in black will one day say see i was a good guy i just wanted to lead you to the caves with the water and you know maybe at this point like maybe there's some truth to that at this point right like maybe he's listened in on jack's conversation with Locke, and like he's like all right i gotta maybe start like playing things mm. out with this guy a little bit more mm. uh, it's, it's an interesting take because i mean yeah. I, there might be something where i mean this is where jacob did or where the man in black did kill his mother and i wonder maybe it was a thing of like when they find adam and eve in a couple of episodes i know that we talked about the man in black possibly wanting to spook the candidates with the whole monster stuff in the pilot could that be another thing then maybe the man in black is saying, like, I'll give you a momentary respite now, but it's only to lure you further into my trap and show you exactly how warped and perverted this island can be so that you will all leave and then yeah. I can take over. Yes. Yeah. So you can either leave or die so I can leave. Uh, well, well, we'll have plenty of time to talk about Adam and Eve very, very soon. We don't have to spend much time on it here today. Uh, but Jack's going to find the caves. He's going to see that there's water here. We're going to get the first iteration of Life and Death, uh, the theme from Michael Giacchino. And it's it's played like very hauntingly mm-hmm. and beautifully and, and just, uh, oh, God, this is a great moment. This is a this episode is Filled with treasure, Mike Bloom. I'm telling you, this is an all-star well, episode of Lost. And one treasure in particular that gets found right here, Josh. A nice alabaster doll for your play. Yeah, there's a Charles. lot of like, there's like lots of creepy, like, uh, horror movie caliber dead dolls in like the water. There's like one that Jack picks up and then he looks to the side and he sees like all of these like different dolls that were, were, were schlepped onto the plane clearly. And I don't listen. I don't think that we ever meet the person who's responsible for all of these dolls. Uh, but I, I, I would like to talk to that person and find out what you were doing with all these things. You're running a scam. Was this something that you were going to be like reselling to, to people? on the streets at a higher price mm, maybe it was uh, sawyer or yeah maybe sawyer I got, i'm running a, i'm scalping dolls i want to know i want to know who's responsible for this because they're so creepy and there are so many there's of them. so many but i dolls are an interesting motif in loss that we can track more because dolls typically represent in the show like a loss of innocence or quite literally a loss in children. We're going to see later on in the infamous fire plus water, for example, that I believe Charlie has a very uh, nightmarish dream where his dad cuts off the head of a doll with a butcher's knife. So that's a, a nice little thing to look out for all the various doll incarnations. So I think, I think this is number one in terms of creepiness across the board. It's so creepy. It's very, very creepy. Uh, also creepy is this gigantic coffin that is just in the middle of this network of caves. Uh, and Jack sees it and he knows that's the one. That's my daddy. Uh, and he doesn't know 
what to do about it. He doesn't know quite what to do as he sees it. And so before he knows that he needs to throw open the door and check inside, uh, we do go back one last time, one last flash Jack of the episode, uh, as we're going to see Jack Shepard give the ticketing agent, the gate agent of Oceanic 815, the what for, uh, as they are giving him some trouble about bringing his father onto the plane. And here we are at the penultimate sound of the Academy Cat. Oceanic Airlines flight 125 non-stop to Singapore, leaving from gate 14. What do you mean you won't put it on the plane? I'm sorry, Mr. Shepard, but our policy is that the body must have the proper documentation. There's just no latitude. No latitude. No latitude. Without the proper documents. You can't do this to me. I'm ready to go now. Perhaps another carrier. No! I want you to listen to me, okay? Because I'm asking you a favor. Chrissy, I'm standing in front of you in the, in the same suit that I'm wearing to my father's funeral, and I'm asking you a favor. In 16 hours, I need to land at LAX. And I need that coffin to clear customs because there's going to be a hearse waiting there. And I need that hearse to take me and that coffin to a cemetery. Why? Chrissy, why can't I just bring him to a funeral home and make all the arrangements? Why can't I really take my time with it? Because, because I need it to be done. I need it to be over. I just, I need to bury my father. So, I mean, there. first of all, I will say, Matthew Fox is putting in awesome work this episode. Considering we saw him in tears a couple scenes ago and now he is bristling with anger is just so much fun i think it's really interesting to compare this to the infamous don't tell me what i can't do walkabout reveal at the end of last episode because i mean both him and Locke do end up blowing up at the respective people who are forbidding them from doing their activities what did i say about bombs that's true i'm sorry Juliet and Charlie, if you're if you're still listening to this podcast, I do apologize about that. But I think that you know it's interesting to compare the two. Granted, Locke is doing it more so for his own selfish reasons of like this is my destiny, I need to do this. Whereas Jack's more so, I need to get this over with. Which again pairs really nicely with him relentlessly pursuing this you know apparition of Christian on the island is because he wants closure. As weird as this site is, I feel like this represents closure to him in some way, shape, or form. And you can see why he ends up running out to the jungle without telling anybody. There is an immediacy to the way he needs to resolve this relationship with his father. And for some strange reason, him chasing this white rabbit would be a way to do so. Yeah. I always thought that this was his most, like, Charlie Salinger moment. This, like, this was the Matthew Fox moment that always felt the most party of five to me. Um, Does that mean something good or bad? Not- I don't know. I don't think it's like quite a knock. I just think that it's like it's it's the most that like I I felt like he it it felt the most to me like this was like a family drama performance than than a lost performance. I guess maybe my hot take is like I didn't I I don't oh I I don't love this scene the way that I love some of the other scenes in this episode. Uh, but it's iconic, obviously. Like the whole like I need it to be done. I need it to be over. Uh, and he just needs to bury his father. And that's something he's never going to get to do yeah i think that that's there's a lot of power in that right of the idea of like 
there is there is one thing that I need to do and then I can be at peace and I can move on. But what if that's just not an option? What if for whatever reason, that one thing that you feel will bring you some sense of relief and comfort and the ability to continue on with your life? What if that thing is taken away and is something you can never pursue? What if you can never find the white rabbit? How do you move on from there? Uh, and everybody's got their own white rabbit or their own collection of rabbits. Even. Yeah. With, with uh, eight written on the side. Yes. Yes. You know, uh, and, and, and I think figuring out the answer to that question is very much what lost is about and certainly very much what life is about. Uh, so in, in that sense, the, the delivery of that information here, uh, and just like that, that bearing of the soul here, uh, is, is very powerful. Uh, and so um, Jack, takes a bat to the coffin when to your, to your point, I think that's a very much a physicalized representation of it. I think it's the, the frustration that his father's body isn't there. He doesn't have that closure. He won't until the series finale. Yeah. And even then he's going to walk in and find the empty coffin. That coffin's never going to be full again. And so Jack just goes all office space on that poor coffin. Yeah, he destroys it, Michael Bolton style. Uh, and speaking of getting destroyed, we go back to the beach and we find out who who nicked the water, who pinched it. And it was Boone. And it was Boone, and he's back, and he's trying to give some water to Claire. He's just trying to do the right thing, and everything got out of hand. Come on, give the guy a break. Certainly no need to, like, throw him on the ground and call him a wanker. <laughs> and Charlie's like, why'd you do it, pretty boy? Hey! And, of course, uh, what's everyone else that. doing? Standing around. Standing and watching, <laughs> yes. Just uh, gawking away as everybody is watching. Everybody just, like, tool on Boone. And here comes Jack, who, after uh, getting some batting practice in, is ready to return. And uh, he's finally ready to lead. Uh, now that he has had that moment out in the jungle... And has talked to John Locke and has found the casket and knows that he he just needs to move on. Um, he's ready to give them the big speech. And here's the final sound of the episode. It's been six days. We're all still waiting. Waiting for someone to come. But what if they don't? We have to stop waiting. We need to start figuring things out. A woman died this morning just going for a swim. And he tried to save her, and now you're about to crucify him? We can't do this. Every man for himself is not going to work. It's time to start organizing. We need to figure out how we're going to survive here. Now, I found water. Fresh water up in the valley. I'll take a group in at first light. If you don't want to come, then find another way to contribute. Last week, most of us were strangers. But we're all here now. And God knows how long we're going to be here. But if we can't live together, we're going to die alone. Josh, 
I'm going to. We're going to die alone. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of like a Matthew, <laughs> a little bit of a whiny. Uh, We're going to die alone. It's such an important line of the I show. I understand now why Rose doesn't want him to ever yeah. say it again. Like, please don't. It was so annoying. We're going to die alone. It's not exactly a, a big gravitas. You know, I think I think he thought it was going to be like, again, for lack of a better term, the big bomb to drop. It ended up being like a little sparkler. You know, live together, die alone as a phrase is obviously like very lost, right? It's a super lost thing. Uh, but the first utterance of it is just like, if we don't live together, we're going to die alone. It's just maybe not remembered very well, but I love it. I think it's so great. I'm going to refer to something here called the International, which is a French socialist anthem. Uh, that's a song that's proven to be uh, a big celebration by anarchists and socialists and communists. And there's actually a lot of common ground between the uh, the international and live together, die alone. So much so that I believe like they actually uh, there's a I think a, a, a version of it done by a guy named Billy Bragg that actually uses those words. Ooh, Billy Bragg is a great musician. Yeah. Um, so basically, I, I guess I'll do the English translation of the first verse because I think it's really interesting. Stand up damned of the earth stand up prisoners of starvation reason thunders in its volcano this is the eruption of the end which is fun considering how uh, a loss was originally going to end with the volcano and everything <laughs> yes that's right of the past let us make a clean slate enslaved masses stand up stand up the world is about to change its foundation we are nothing let us be all so I, I just, it's just such an interesting idea that, I mean, essentially what Jack is kind of preaching here, and I don't mean to get like too you know political about this stuff, is he's essentially preaching a form of socialism, though, right? Of like, everyone find a usefulness. We're all going to work together. And it's such an interesting contrast to Sawyer's literal capitalistic nature. The fact that he says, I have all these supplies. I'm going to trade for them. That's just what I do out here in the wild. And yeah. it's it's such an interesting political dichotomy that I didn't even realize beforehand. I did not realize that as infamous as Live Together, Die Alone, a quote is, I didn't realize that it might have had other connotations to it. Well, yeah, I mean, he even says, like, we can't do every man for himself out here, which is going to be the name of an episode that centers on Sawyer. Uh, not a great episode of Lost. I think very bottom shelf in terms of all of the great episodes of Lost. Uh, but that's that's Sawyer. So so setting up, uh, you know, as we've pointed out here along the way, that it's really the Jack and Locke stuff comes to define a lot of Lost. But at least in season one, a lot of the dichotomy is um, living together versus trying to live alone. And Jack certainly plants his flag here in terms of how he feels that should, life should be lived out on the island. Uh, but I think that for him to even have that, uh, that line here in the speech of every man for himself, which later Kate is going to, to you know, respond to Sawyer with by saying, live together, die alone. She's going to, even as she's becoming more attracted to Sawyer, she's still going to be a Jack Stan uh, in, her, in her own ways. Uh, so it's great. It's very emblematic of, of where we go with Lost overall. Um, all right. So the episode ends. Life and death comes back in the theme. Uh, you know, that's one of the great, great uh, music cues all throughout Lost. Uh, it's playing as Sun and Jin. They're going to they're going to have water together. And, and Michael's going to bring water to, to to Walt. But Walt's asleep. So he gives it to Vincent, who's such a good boy. Good boy. Drink all that. And then he water, brings, digs up a bunch of pot in exchange. Yeah, and a bomb. Uh, and Boone's alone because everyone's mad at Boone. And Sawyer says, how does it feel being at the top of everyone's most hated list? Sucks, <laughs> How does it feel it? getting a bunch of LVP points and down the hatch? 
<laughs> it's got to be pretty bad, right? Because I know, uh, except Boone may never clear the red. Sawyer will certainly Well, he's going to be seeing red. a lot of red very soon, though. Yeah. Yeah, and then the episode ends with Kate and Jack sitting together, and uh, it's in in a way mirroring Tabula Rasa, uh, where, where Jack, you just Jack imagine and Kate. your thumb hooked into your jeans as you say that. <laughs> it's kind of what's happening. Uh, I'm holding my sides at the very least and laughing a little bit. Not they're not hurting, uh, but Jack and Kate are going to sit. And uh, back in that episode in in Tabula Rasa, Kate is going to say, "I want to tell you what I did," and Jack doesn't want to know. Uh, but here, Jack's going to tell Kate. Uh, what happened? Because she does want to know. And he surmises that. He says, my dad died in Sydney. Uh, and she says, I'm sorry. And he says, yeah, I'm sorry too. And we get one final piano chord. We get to the Lost title. And that, my friends, is an A++++ episode of Lost called White Rabbit. I will also notice that in the notes here, Josh, you wrote, I finally noticed the bell bottom pants. I just want to make sure that that did not did. go undiscovered. I did. I did. I did. I noticed them as she sits down. Like you could see like the, the like, sort of like the bell bottom quality to the to the jeans that she is wearing. And I did indeed. I did indeed notice it. All right. So that's the episode. Um, we've done a lot of diving deep down the rabbit hole on this one. Uh, and certainly just like kind of like, you know, Jack's character arc for the long term. But I, I guess I, I don't really know your feelings on Jack Shepard as a character. I mean, there there are so many great characters on lost and when you say who's your favorite character from lost like i feel like common answers i'm a lock guy i'm a hurley guy i love sawyer i love saeed um i don't know how many people i know who say jack is their favorite character i have a very good friend who loves jack and says jack is their favorite character what are your feelings on on jack what did white rabbit set up for you in terms of your long-term expectations of jack yeah so i mentioned this a little bit before i feel like unfortunately jack has done a little bit of disservice where he gets some really interesting stuff early on but i feel like you know, when Lost gets a little more complicated, even starting in season two, when we start bringing in new characters and the, you know, the the island becomes a lot more mythology centered and they're bringing in a lot of plot as well. Jack sort of becomes less of a character who does things and more of a character who has things done to him, if that makes sense. I feel yeah. like the best Jack Shepard is season one Jack Shepard and season six Jack Shepard for the very reasons that you've defined multiple times, is because he's doing things. He's figuring things out. Uh, I mean, I, maybe I'd extend it to like an, a post-Ajira Jack Shepard, where he now that he's away, he's, he becomes comes the man of faith a bit. He realizes that, okay, maybe this idea of fate is something that is real. So now I need to go back to the island, and I need to, you know, save everybody. And that's... That's more interesting to me than I think for a while when it's just, oh, Jack has to operate on bed. Oh, Jack's going to be down in the hatch for a little while. You know, I feel like they lose a plot, a bit of the plot with Jack. And that unfortunately allows other characters to sort of take his place as maybe the more interesting people to pay attention to. So overall, I feel like Jack starts and ends on really interesting notes. It's just everything in the middle of that sandwich that I think unfortunately is a, a lesser quality meat compared to all the great deli stuff around it in terms of characterization. 
Well, let's track that as we go along the way. The good news is we're going to be going in a very granular pace throughout all of Lost, because I, I would challenge that. I think that Jack is a very compelling character. Uh, Emily Fox, by the way, really not a big fan of Matthew Fox. Uh, and every time we've ever watched Lost together, she's like, oh, Jack's such a whiner. Uh, but I think that's, that's part of the, the, the character for me. I've talked about the idea that uh, much like uh, Colby in Survivor Heroes versus Villains was Superman in a fat suit. Uh, I feel like they're in, in, in that same respect, like Jack Shepard is like an asshole in a hero suit. Uh, where like he's like he's he, he can be like a really salty bad guy uh, and is somebody who is uh, very strung up in in his own head in a way that can really have disastrous impact for people around him and has this hero complex that's been ingrained in him and instilled in him in this very dark way uh, over the course of his life that again in sort of the same way that i talked about Margot shepherd it doesn't like justify the way he behaves but for me helps to explain it uh to a large degree and i think that that's a very compelling facet of the character and you say it's like season one and season six jack that's like the best jack that we get but i think that that's like discounting uh you know the the maybe season two jack is a little bit of a ho-hum but i feel like the the later stage season three jack that like comes back from his stint with the others is like we're gonna blow them all to hell and he's the guy who comes in with the plan of like i'm gonna get us off the island and even when all evidence is pointing to the contrary of like maybe you guys should stay maybe you do have work to do here he's just gonna be so dead set on it and it's such a compelling narrative to me in the end of season three all of season four, uh, you know, the season three, we have to go back a bit all letting you in on this idea as you're going to be watching season four of like Jack's going to do something that he deeply, deeply, irreversibly regrets. What is that? What's that going to be? That There's just so much on the hook with that character, which is interesting uh, for for a character who like is uh, is constantly unable to let himself off the hook. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of great stuff with Jack, certainly in the in the writer's room mind. Uh, the story, uh, Jack was important enough that the story begins with him and the story closes with him. Uh, so I, I, is, is he worthy of that? Mm. I think that like there's there, there are so many there are so many people that are such flashier characters and that's totally understandable right. to me. And I think that to say Jack is like a favorite character uh, requires uh, some reconciliation with some of the, the edgier parts of uh of of the man but um i think that he is going to bring us a lot of compelling material some of our most compelling material to talk about along the yeah way. i would say that i mean it seems like jack is then the meat and potatoes guy if we're making another food and food comparison then we're like maybe these other characters are ones that you would go out to dinner and feast upon but jack's the one that you're going to come come home to dig into their staples of the show that you know is always going to produce solid material even if this isn't like the water cooler stuff that some of these other characters right exactly yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, as we've been doing uh, along the way here, let's pull from the series Bible. Uh, this is what was written about of Jack Shepard way back in the day. He was described as brave, sharp-witted, powerful, and vulnerable. Jack finds himself cast in the role of hero, whether he likes it or not, and he's more inclined to go with not. Despite having shared a story centering on his time as a spinal surgeon and having clearly demonstrated his abilities as a doctor, much of Jack's past is shrouded in mystery Simply put, it's not something he likes to talk about, but if he did, it would certainly explain his tattoos. <laughs> Jack's reason for being in Australia is something he doesn't like to talk about either, but we come to learn he was heading back to the States for the funeral of someone who has long defined his path 
as the series unfolds, our stories continue to find Jack as the one the other castaways call upon to make the life and death decisions they are unwilling to make for themselves. So that basically hits the nail on the head as far as uh, the the long arc of Jack Shepard and the bare essentials of that character. And I cannot believe that everything about his mysterious tattoos are baked into the premise originally of Jack Shepard, when that is like the thing that lost detractors and even lost lovers will readily point to as like, that's the worst. That's the thing that sucks. Yeah, I actually think I'm, I'm in the series Bible now. I think I see it scrawled in the in the margin. It says by Ling question mark. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So we'll get to Jack's tattoos. Uh not terribly long from no. now. In fact, I think next week we're gonna start to dig into them a little oh bit. Oh boy. Oh uh, boy. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Uh how about some production notes uh from White Rabbit as compiled as always by the Ben behind the curtain, Ben Martell, uh, who notes that uh, once again, pointing back to Javier Grayo Marxwatch's lost will and testament uh, that actually, sorry, uh, miss, miss, uh, uh, misidentifying this. This is from a, a podcast appearance of David Fury, uh, the writer of Walkabout. Uh, he revealed that uh, that the island uh, was going to be revealed as moving in White Rabbit, mm. we know that the uh, we know that the island moves, uh, but this is something that's revealed to us very, very late later on in Lost. And according to David Fury, that was going to be something that was revealed as early as White Rabbit. Uh, the island moving was always intended to be part of the fabric of the show from very early on in its run. Uh, and we'll we'll point to this podcast in our show notes. It occurs about an hour and twenty minutes into the podcast, uh, so. Worth uh, worth paying attention to, perhaps. Wow. Well, it, maybe if this had happened, you would be able to get an A in astronomy despite skipping the lectures. I don't think so. Uh, but I get a, an F in astrology uh, <laughs> because Claire is uh, is going to be revealed in this episode as uh, being big into astrology, which is just not something that I myself am necessarily into. Um, another thing. Uh, so from the series Bible, we mentioned that the series Bible had these like stories of the week that were going to be introduced in episodes of Lost that were ultimately abandoned. This is one that was going to center on an election, Mike. Uh, after a failed attempt at communism, followed by a glorified version of every man for himself, the castaways finally realized they need one person to make decisions which affect the whole group. Despite his reluctance to take on such responsibility, Jack emerged as the early favorite, but when he fails to provide food or water, a dark horse candidate rises to challenge his leadership, John Locke. We never get that exact story, Mike, but versions of that will certainly play out. Just no like actual like ballots being cast. Yeah, I don't know what they would write on anyway. Uh, but I mean, this also goes in line with what they were attributing to John Locke in the series Bible last time, how they were definitely trying to make him a more malevolent character from the jump. Uh, this could be another one to it, considering if he was directly challenging Jack for leadership at this point in the series, uh, they're definitely setting up those light pieces and dark pieces in the series Bible. Yeah. Okay, so we know that the White Rabbit, clearly it's a reference to Alice in Wonderland. Other examples of pop culture that the White Rabbit relates to in terms of insane hallucinatory experiences, The Matrix, Star Trek, Jefferson Airplane. Uh, but the White Rabbit itself becomes a huge symbol throughout Lost. Uh, ben Linus will have White Rabbits at the Hydra Station, which he's going to use to con Sawyer in the aforementioned Every Man for Himself. Uh, the rabbits originated from the Dharma time travel experiments at the Orchid Station. 
The Dharma Initiative is going to use a white rabbit as the symbol for one of their stations. Uh, the Looking Glass, the Looking Glass itself, refers to the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, which is called Through the Looking Glass, which is also the name of the season three finale that uh, is arguably uh, the best episode of Lost in many people's opinions, and certainly in the conversation. Uh, so it's and, it, and that's also going to be another Jack uh, Shepard episode. So uh, and that will be the first flash forward of the series. So for that to be the sequel uh, in a in a way to White Rabbit, I think is is pretty interesting. But the White Rabbit and the Alice in Wonderland connection of it all is far from being the only bunny based material in uh, in White Rabbit. Uh, Watership Down by Richard Adams is uh is a book that is going to be very lightly featured in this episode featured in a bigger way later on down the line uh i believe in confidence man is when it's going to come more into into prominence or at least be uh name checked in a more direct way but in the in the great light sticks scene this is what sawyer is reading i've never read watership down um i i I feel like i'm missing out in a big i have seen clips of the animated film, which is which is supposedly really creepy and terrifying. Yeah, there there right? are shots burned into my memory of rabbits with blood in their mouths, like after tearing each other apart. I mean, it's very much like before there was adult animation in the style of Seth MacFarlane in South Park. There was Watership Down. Oh wow, really? I'm sure that there's other examples of of haunting, terrifying I mean, yeah, there, there's, cartoons there's the works of, before Seth MacFarlane. I mean, there's the works of like Dante Bashko, <laughs> uh, you know, Cool Town, and all that weird stuff. But that, that's the I guess that's the modern comparison, I suppose. Or the, it's like very Adult Swim esque. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I would love to read Watership Down someday. It just has not happened for me uh, yet. Ben Martell highly recommends the animated movie. Uh, has not seen the BBC one yet. I guess that there was one uh, on BBC. With the doctor. Uh, it, uh, with the doctor. Um, all right. Let's, uh, we've got a lot of feedback to get into here, Mike. But before we get into the feedback, how about a quick shout out to our friends over at Sunbasket? How do you feel about that? I mean, much more delicious than rabbit. <laughs> I don't know. Rabbit, if cooked properly, is very, very tasty. I would not diminish the contributions of rabbit. But Sunbasket is undebatedly fantastic. It is delicious. No matter what you like to eat, Sunbasket makes it easy. They've got paleo, carb-conscious, gluten-free, Mediterranean, diabetes-friendly, and vegan meal plans, whatever you're into. And you can choose from 18 weekly recipes, everything you need to eat clean and healthy. Sunbasket sends you organic produce and clean ingredients right to your door to create your own dishes from their recipes, such as shrimp pad thai with rice noodles and sugar snap peas, or Hawaiian locomoco with teriyaki chicken and fried eggs. And of course, my favorite, the huli huli chicken uh, is what I have the hurly hurly chicken. I made from a hurly bird, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if that is a type of chicken in the end. Uh, but Emily Fox and I, we've made a few things from Sunbasket, and everything we've made has been delightful and delicious. Uh, right now, Sunbasket has a special promotion for post show recaps listeners for up to $60 off, $30 off your first two deliveries. It's a great deal if that means putting meal planning on autopilot. And you can get in on some lunch planning too, because Sunbasket also offers up five minute salad mixes for an easy lunch that's going to help you eat clean and feel great sun basket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy delicious meals at home no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen everything's pre-measured and easy to prep you can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in as little as 15 minutes so if that sounds good to you you can put meal planning on autopilot with this special offer at sunbasket.com 
dot com slash post and you'll get $60 off. That's crazy. Go to sunbasket.com slash post to learn more about this limited time $60 off special. How about some feedback, Mike Bloom? Absolutely. Much like Jack, we are on our back ready for some feedback. All right, we're going into the others, the 15 to 16 others section here on the podcast. And uh, we're starting with some talk about walkabout. A lot of people want to talk about walkabout, uh, even though we just spent the last two hours in White Rabbit. The walkabout. Oh, I like that. Listen, by the way, people, send in your Lindelofs. We triggered the Lindelof, and we haven't gotten any Lindelofs as of this recording. You're not going to get to hear the Lindelof unless you send in Lindelofs. You're just going to hear Josh and I sing stupid songs like that. And no one gets a hat out of that. So send in your Lindelofs down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. And we have the right amount of Lindelofs. We will drop a Lindelof on you. But so far, nothing. Uh, Let's work on yes, that. Come absolutely. On. If we don't sing together, we're just going <laughs> to we're, we're gonna sulk in a corner alone. and, and We're going to sulk in a corner yeah. alone and be like, oh, no one wanted to do oh, a Lindelof. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. We're going to sulk in a corner alone. <laughs> Is that yeah, better? yeah, we're going to sulk in a corner alone. All right. Uh, so other number one talking about walkabout. Uh, there are some people who are wondering if walkabout is overrated, uh. Mike. Uh, this is from Stefan Johnson, who sent a ton of feedback in this past week. Stefan writes in and says, is walkabout overrated? If you remove the wheelchair reveal scene from this episode, is it still a top 10 or even top 20 episode? I'm not suggesting we remove it from Lost Canon just from this episode if you take that wheelchair scene out. So in other words, if you take one scene out, is the rest of the episode still great? Does a scene make an episode? And Geek Furious also had chimed in on this very same subject on Twitter and wrote in and said, I get why so many people love this episode, but I don't think it would make my top 20, probably because I didn't see it until after the series was over and I caught up to seasons one and two. Where do you come down on that, Bloom? Is walkabout overrated? I mean... I, I, as much as I love Stefan Johnson and his feedback, I, I, I feel like the logic of, well, if you just take one scene out of it, it all falls apart. It's faulty because I mean, it's a fundamentally different. Yeah, episode, well, exactly. And right? that's the point is that all, the, all the flashbacks lead to the revelation and it makes you view things from a different light. You know, it's, it's like saying like, oh, yeah, if you take the last scene out of Citizen Kane, it's just a really bad movie. Like. Right. I mean, I think if you take if you take all of the stuff out, but you keep the the wheelchair reveal and plug that in, just like kind of like drop that into a random moment somewhere else in in Lost, it won't have the same power behind it because there is none of that buildup. You didn't get to see Locke abused by his boss. You didn't get to see Locke uh, in such a desperate state that he has like he's hired a, a telephone girlfriend uh, like there's there's so much that's built into Locke in that episode that makes that final moment pay off so well. What I would say, actually, like it's none of the, it's the, the, I, I think that all of the lock material is, is prime, prime stuff. I think that like the, the Charlie Shannon subplot of that episode, like the best thing that comes out of that is a great moment between Charlie and Hurley. Um, but otherwise, like, I feel like that that's like, I, I could totally leave mm. that and be totally yeah. fine to just have the rest of walkabout. So I, I actually do think, that as as an episode, as like a unit of television and like a pound for pound, scene for scene episode, I think that there is more in White Rabbit that would get two thumbs up for me than there is in Walkabout. But because Walkabout's final moment that is so cleverly, carefully built is as powerful as it is, 
it is ultimately like if you had to put a gun to my head and say which is the better episode, I would say Walk. Well, I think it is, it's also micro versus macro and what you value. You know, I totally respect Stefan's opinion. Don't get me wrong. I think if you're going for like if you look at a scene by scene thing, then yeah, I mean, I think you could talk about a slew of episodes that have more scene for scene better you know times than something like walkabout which has some faulty moments and maybe some stuff that you know is a bit of treading water until we get to that big moment but that's not what they're going for you know they're going for this big reveal at the end so when you rewatch the episode you get to see all the fun little moments and so i feel like just because it's so fundamentally different from something like white rabbit it's a little tough to compare but again, everyone has their own opinion. And I think depending on what you enjoy from a lost episode, it's going to impact exactly how you take it. And so I can't exactly say like it's overrated or it's underrated. It's going to be how you rate it, no matter how, you know what you think of lost and what you value in a lost episode. All right. Other number two is we have some other people weighing in on the greatness that is Walkabout. We have some notable people weighing in on the greatness of, of Walkabout, don't we, Mike? Oh, yes. So the great LaRubota, the showrunner of Survivor South Africa, of Survivor Amazing. franchise, near and dear to my heart. I've recapped it over on Reality TV or Happens with the great Shannon Gates. Josh was on this past week as well. Uh, LaRue wrote in last week, very big loss, man, which makes me very excited. He asks, is Locke's meeting with the smoke monster a recognition of darkness? And that's why he saves it. Here's yet another interpretation, Josh, of the I look into these the eye of the island. Could it be that Locke did indeed see the eye through the monster, but what he saw was dark, and in a way that was beautiful. I think it's not impossible that that was part of like the original plan, right? Like if we're gonna set Locke up as like a heavy, somebody who's gonna do some really bad stuff. Um, and is going to represent some some of the darker aspects of humanity later on in Lost. Um, but I think like as early as this episode, as 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 White Rabbit, and you're getting to like hear more of his philosophy on the island spoken to another person. These aren't the words of like a bad man. Uh, and this is just one episode later, right? So I I think that when when they when we talked about what the original idea was for Locke in the series Bible of like this is a man with a plan and this is a guy who's been jilted in his life. Um, I think you can see the DNA of Locke was going to be their big bad for the show. Um, but I think ultimately, pretty quickly, I think they saw the nuance in Terry O'Quinn's performance and, and had to pivot in, in a different direction. Um, and I think for me, it's less that the smoke monster recognized a darkness in, in Locke and instead recognize like moldability mm. uh someone who can be manipulated somebody who could be useful in the smoke monster's quest uh for what the smoke monster wants uh and i think saw that in Locke. and i mean everybody's got a darkness in them so if that's a darkness in in Locke, like this uh endless desire to be meaningful and and to to matter um, then yeah, I would say he recognized a darkness there. Uh, but I think what I would describe it as more is he recognized uh, flaws in the design of John Locke and flaws that it could exploit. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jim Fells, who provided some great musical analysis as per usual on his YouTube channel, uh, this time he really got into the the weeds with the life and death theme. Actually mentioned that yeah. uh, we get some more appearances of the Boars, Josh, in future installments. Yeah. 
Yes, Jim Fells wrote in. We'll, we'll link out, of course, as always, to Jim Fells' material, which you guys should be watching if you're not. Uh, Jim Fells writes in and says, the Boers will actually show up in several more seasons after this, because we were both confused. Like, how, mu- how much Boer action is there? I, I know that in Outlaws, uh, Boers are going to play a big part of the Sawyer storyline, the Boyer storyline. Uh, but Jim Fells also notes that Jin's going to get hit by one in season two. Sawyer and Desmond are going to go hunting for a Boer in season three, uh, which is the scene that I don't think that we actually see. I think you just know that it happens. Uh, what a missed opportunity that we didn't get to see that in actual form. Uh, Miles is going to find a dead boar to eat in season five. He's going to show up. Uh, he's going to show up back up to the beach. He's like, look what I found. And they're like, how'd you find that? It's like, I had talked to ghosts, but I'm not going to tell you that yet. Uh, and there's even boars in across the sea. So the boars are going to be seen all throughout Lost here. Um, okay, a couple of other things from Walkabout. This is from Josh Harkness, who said, something I bumped on in Walkabout was just how culturally inappropriate the authentic Walkabout tour would have been, especially being led by two white men. It would have been a cash grab and potentially another case of Locke being easily swindled. Obviously, it's just a TV show and production locations in Hawaii have their limits, but I found it interesting and I thought I'd share that. If you're interested in more stuff like that, just let me know or any of the other Aussies listening and we can help you out, Josh Harkness, uh, hailing from Australia. Uh, yeah, I think we, we touched a little bit on that with Ben Martell's note about um, the meaning behind the word walkabout and its uh, its use as uh, its derogatory use in some capacities in Australia. And I, I do think that like Troy Zan leading the charge uh, on, a, on a walkabout being another example of Locke being conned, being fooled. It's just another fun way of like retroactively looking at the. I mean, fun's probably the wrong word. Uh, sad is probably mm-hmm. the right word of looking back on John Locke. Yeah, it's sort of like going to like I don't know a Minnesota and Mexican restaurant and like feeling like you're getting that authentic experience and you're just feeling like eh, this doesn't feel right. You know, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to other number three, which is still stemming from walkabout a little bit. But I think it's it's interacting with a lot of what we do here on Down the Hatch. And it's a question about like retconning versus planning ahead. And once again, returning to Stefan Johnson Uh, and Stefan writes in and said, is retconning more impressive than planning ahead in walkabout? When Locke meets the man in black slash the smoke monster, it is thought of as either incredible foresight by the writers or incredible retconning by the writers. Either way, it's great, but I think that retconning may take more imagination and be more difficult than actually planning ahead. If the writers are planning ahead and stick to the plan, then they can look forward and just keep writing. If they retcon, then they have to go back and try to fit the future into the past, which seems much more difficult to me. Damon and Carlton should get more credit for what they made fit into their own story. What do you think about that, Bloom? Where do you land on the side of having a plan versus... um, realizing that you didn't have necessarily a plan, but you had ingredients that you can now cook into something. As someone who loves improvisation, of course, I'm always going to go with the second. You know, it's much more admirable to see someone come up with a good story on the fly than have to write something out. I mean, it's ironically something that I feel like has really been brought into the conversation given the wake of the Game of Thrones finale, where I know uh, Lindsay Ellis, who's a great media critic, put out this huge magnum opus about the series, and she brought up how one of the dangers of knowing exactly where you're going is that sometimes you feel like you're almost stuck as a roller coaster car on a rail, you know, where you're like, okay, I know where the hills and valleys have to be. And as a result, you can't really write that creatively because you know, at the end of the day, that character is going to have to be there at this portion of time. And so I do enjoy the fact that, you know, they do have to retcon stuff. Cause I feel like from a writer's perspective, that gives you much more creativity 
much more room to work with. Granted, it gives it you also a harder time of trying to explain it. But at the same time, you can look ahead at the goalposts and know you have to get there rather than saying, okay, I need to get look ahead at the goalposts and also I need to hit these story points A, B, C, and D, which severely limits both the stuff you can create and as a result, the stuff that comes out in the characters. Uh, listen, I think that to, to have like goalposts to aim for, to have like general ideas of like how, what's the story you're telling and knowing like thematically uh, what you're, what you're engaging and having a sense of like what your answer is to that. And even having that so specific that you have like images and um, even like full on scenes written down or imagined or however you plot something out of like where characters will wind up by the end of it. Um, like aspirations, uh, you know, things to things to work towards. I think all of that is is totally great and totally totally fine. Uh, but I think especially in like the the art of writing television, which is such a to do. Uh, not that like making a movie isn't a to do. Not that writing a play isn't a to do or a novel isn't a to do. But the pace and the scheduling of television, the many different masters that you are serving along the way, that I think to like ironclad write out an ongoing. Going show, not a limited show, which is a little that, that you know structurally and I think process wise is more akin maybe to making just like a very long feature, uh, but like a show like Lost where you have to do twenty some odd episodes of television a year or uh, you know sixteen or seventeen or whatever they were aiming for at least in those final three seasons uh, that they did not always hit for several reasons um, is really really challenging. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, like sometimes like the, the, the Damon and Carlton saying like, we've got an answer for that stuff in public probably did them a real disservice in terms of the ultimate, uh, look back on, on lost and especially in like the immediate aftermath of lost. Um, but you have to give yourself room for maneuverability. You have to, that idea that we've talked about that was apparently in play in the writer's room of best idea wins. Uh, that has to be in play. You have to listen to what the show is telling you. Like if people are very, very much responding to a character and you find that the story is opening up the more you use that character, I think it's important to listen to that. I think it's also important to find the line of like, you're not just letting the audience decide what you do. Like you're doing everything creatively, specifically because of the audience. That's a very, very dangerous rabbit hole to go down, and I think inadvisable. You don't want to chase that white rabbit because that way lies true madness. But I think to to listen to your story and have faith that if you listen to your instincts, and I think a lot of this is like what Locke is telling Jack, go in pursuit, go run after the thing that is eluding you, and maybe you'll find it. And Maybe what you find isn't what you thought you would find, um, but it will tell you how to lead yourself and the people that rely on you to the next place you need to go. So I don't think that there's necessarily one that's more impressive than the other. I think I just, I think that the retconning it's not something that bothers me. I think that that's something that's just like foundationally going to have to be part of any TV show's DNA. And it's the truly great ones that find a way to like reflect on what they have done in their, in their uh, lifespan already and like how they can expand upon that and, and wedge that into a, into a shape to fit the direction of where they want to go next. That's, you know, that's really elite type of stuff uh, that not every single showrunner or, or team of writers can, can pull. All right. What's other number four? Other number four, uh, we're, we're still kind of going going off of walkabout a little bit, but it's this idea of did Lost ever deliver on the promise not to serialize? And both Zach Brooks and Brendan Fitzpatrick wrote in 
on this subject. Brooks writes in and says, is Walkabout the closest that Lost ever gets to having a bottle episode? It's not a classic bottle episode structure, but it's a true standalone episode. Is it possible for a show like Lost to do a bottle episode? Was there one that I'm just not remembering? I would say Expose is pretty close. Yeah. Expose is pretty close to a standalone. I think I think a bottle episode is something different. You know, when you're talking about a bottle episode, like you're staying in like one stage basically for the vast majority of an episode and nothing like that comes to mind. Maybe lockdown is is relatively close to that, but there's other scenes uh, outside of the the hatch in that one. So a true bottle episode in that sense of like you're just grounded in one location that doesn't really come to mind for me with Lost, but as a standalone, as like a, you could just tune in and watch this episode of Lost and mostly be okay. Expose would be so there's you know the general premise of Lost, right? There's these people on an island and the island is crazy and weird things happen on the island. Okay, so it's an episode of that show with those characters and two people seemingly die and everybody has to figure out why. That's a standalone episode as far as I'm And concerned. it has to be early on, right? Because there's so much that gets involved in terms of story and character stuff that you need to know beforehand. I mean, to the point where previously on Lost doesn't really become a thing until later on in this season. So it has to be something early on. And you feel like it's just the flashbacks are such a beginning, beginning, middle and end story, introduction of the character, description of the character and big gotcha moment at the end that... You know, especially when we start getting into characters, multiple flashbacks, you have to know who they are, and that's going to make sense as to the decisions that they make. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's the only standalone episode, really, but that's not what Lost was intending to do. So it's not really a show where it's not, uh, you know, it's not Cheers, where you can sit down and be like, that's Carla. She's the saucy waitress. Right. Um, all right. Other number five. Let's talk about Christian Shepard. Lots of feedback about Christian Shepherd here. Uh, let's let's take this from Christine Leifer. Christine writes in and says, To this day, despite any and all other info, I firmly believe that Christian Shepherd's casket was empty. The argument at the ticket counter and the subsequent empty casket equals Jack wasn't allowed to transport the body, and knowing he was going to bury an empty casket is what drove his delusions. What do you think about that theory, Mike? I mean, that would be fun, and it would be... It would make sense, considering the fact there is no body in the coffin. I would say my headcanon makes it think that, a la Seth Norris, this body just got flung from the coffin. Those things aren't exactly uh, the most secure in terms of their lids, because uh, I don't think the subjects stand any chance of escaping anytime soon. So I'd like to believe that it just sort of flew into the trees, and then that's maybe when the monster overtook it, analyzed it, and then became Christian Shepherd. Because, I mean, the issue... Is the issue the body or is the issue the coffin? I mean, I, I think I, the, the, the smoke monster is going to need that body on the island in order to keep being Christian Shepherd. So, yeah, because because it's not going to have a moment of analyzing Jack like it anal- is going to analyze. No, Echo right. Later and, on. and even then, like, I think it can sustain some visions, but I don't think it can do much more than that. Um, right. I mean, I think that like it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit whatever uh, in terms of like how that stuff works. It's all pretty wonky. We'll figure it out as we go. Uh, Plus, like um, I can imagine like the FAA rules. I'm no Jack, but like, <laughs> OK, you could you could trans like, yes, transporting a body in a coffin. Yeah. It goes to regulations. But like, I'm pretty sure shipping a regular coffin is still a pretty big to do. Right. Like, I don't know how much Christy the agent would be like, OK, listen. Uh, you can do it, but you can't technically have the body in the coffin. Right. Uh, but I think the body had to be there. Um, I agree. And I don't know why is the body not in the coffin. 
Look, I know that we're so used to seeing gravity. I'm so I know we're so used to seeing the smoke monster go all and just like crazy and knock down trees and explode through the ground and knock Mr. Echo all over the place uh, and pull Seth Norris out of the cockpit and lose an MVP point in the process because he died. Uh, But I also think we've never really who's to say that the smoke monster, who is like a very careful manipulator doesn't have a, a more delicate touch. Who's to say that, like, the smoke monster didn't, like, Smokey McSmokerson his way to the cave and, like, lift the lid of the coffin very gingerly and then just, like, wrap its little tendril around Christian Shepard. Like, if I take Christian Shepard out, Jack's going to get so weirded out when he comes to the coffin. There's no body here. Like, this is going to mess with him soups hard. Uh, who's to say that the smoke monster doesn't have a softer side? Like, a, like a, mm. literally a physically softer touch. I like this theory because it means that Christian Shepherd is a doll. <laughs> it's the monster's creepy doll. Yeah, I mean, basically. I mean, maybe he's just like, he's <laughs> yanking the body so he can like store him away in some secret spot that Jack stands no chance of ever finding. And he's always going to have this like cross to bear in his mind of like, I never found my dad's body. Uh, so if the, if the smoke monster, if the man in black is the the OG con man. Uh maybe maybe he felt like this would be a good move. Yeah. I mean, who's to say we're we are really trying to I mean we talked about this in question three, so we're retconning it's what all the we're doing. Is. It's all we're doing. There's a lot yeah, of retconning this going creature on is. So like it's uh, there the canon is all up in the head right now. Of course we'd love to hear your theories as well because considering how much I mean I would say Christian is probably going to be the most recurring appearance from the man in black. Obviously I think flock is the uh, more significant part, but I feel like Christian is the one that is much more of a recurring motif. So we're going to have many, many instances to come back to this well and promptly fall down it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Craig Falkenham. Yes, Craig Falkenham. We got you this time. Uh, also written, uh, wrote in on this topic and said, I think the reason the monster chose Jack's father as a form to appear to him is that in the previous scenes, he says he became a doctor because of his family, which obviously caused him to think about his father. Smokey read his mind, and that was the person he was thinking about. Um, so, but I still think it kind of falls into the same category. It's got to be the body. I mean, he's he, this is his move. He finds yes. he finds dead bodies and he turns into the dead body. Uh, so I know that you know the monster can obviously read people's memories and produce images based on that. Do we have a a, th- a thought as to like proximity? Because yes, the mon. I mean, if it's just sort of like if they're on the island, then yeah, the monster could just be chilling in the dark zone and just sort of scan Jack's mind, and say, "Oh, he has daddy issues." Well, ding, 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 ding. Uh, but I feel like it has to be pretty up close to like actually get a, a get a feeling for the guy. That's right? my feeling as well. I'm sure that there are going to be violations along the way. Um, ben Martell pointed out that uh, you and I talked about how we don't talk enough about how euthanizing the marshal must have sat with Jack in the following days. So maybe is that something that had an influence on Jack in terms of seeing his father? Like, did did having to kill this guy basically drive him to form some delusions? I would tend to think probably not, other than, like, it it helped to drive him towards, like, this kind of, like, desperate, bad mood. (laughs) This deep funk that he's been in. I would say it's more of a driver towards the whole Joanna thing than it is maybe the Christian Shepherd thing where, you know, I do wonder him not being able to save Joanna, him not only not being able to save the marshal, but actually having to pretty much kill 
the marshal is probably a lot of mounting tension and guilt on a guy who already puts a lot of pressure on himself to begin with. So, yeah, I could imagine in tying in the the previous episodes that the death of the marshal has profoundly affected Jack, considering that, again, he is nary a smile to crack on the beach, even in the more, uh, you know, down low times. And it might just be because he's had so many sad things he's had to do the past several days. Totally. All right. Other number six, more on the man in black. Was the man in black trying to kill Jack or help him? We've already talked about this to a degree. Daniel Brennan wrote in and said, what was the man in black's motivations for bringing Jack into the jungle? Did he want him to fall off the cliff? Did he want Jack and Locke to talk? Was he simply trying to help Jack find fresh water like he claimed in season six. Uh, so that's that's one question on the matter. This comes from Ben, uh, from Matt Nelson, rather. Matt Nelson writes in and says, the scene where Jack chases his father and the man, slash the man in black, into the jungle, he nearly runs himself off a cliff. Later in season six, the man in black claims that he was trying to help lead Jack to the water. Given that Jack almost runs himself off a cliff, can we consider this the man in black's attempt to kill Jack? He doesn't himself directly hurt Jack. Jack just runs in the jungle and trips himself, providing a potential loophole around the man in black being unable to kill the candidates it does raise the question of how the man in black knew the survivors of oceanic 15 needed water but given the man in black's omniscience about so many different events on the island i'd be willing to grant he was able to find this out in some manner yeah it's because he took on the form of kevin garvey senior uh and uh was was spying on the the coco bandits did you not listen to the lost rpg yeah, that's a that's officially canon. That's canon. It's now. a really <laughs> weird part of the canon, but there's weirder parts. <laughs> and Matt Nelson continues, I suspect the writers didn't intend this as the official explanation in season one, but given what the Man in Black can and cannot do, don't tell him what he can and cannot do, in terms of killing the candidates, this seems to fall into those loopholes. What do you think? Uh, and I think, Mike, as we said... I, I feel like maybe it started out as like, yeah, let me kill this guy. Or maybe it could have been something of like, let me size this guy up at least. He seems to be important. Maybe he knows he's a candidate. Maybe he knows that he can't kill this guy, uh, but this would fall under the loophole. And then I think he sees that relationship born between Jack and John. And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe this is uh, not somebody to kill right now. Maybe I, I should slow play this a little bit. Because the amount of time that they're on the island – uh, you know, three years is probably a decent amount of time for anybody with the, you know, w- once the time travel stuff happens and everybody gets mm-hmm. locked into the into the 70s. But they're really uh, until like the, the the great escape and the people who make it uh, off the island, the Oceanic Six. It's like I- I'm going to get the number exactly wrong, but I think it's like only like day 100, day 101. That's a blip on the radar for the smoke monster who is thousands of years old. He's like, I can be a little patient on this. Yeah, and I would also uh, say, you know, how did they know that the Oceanic Survivors needed water? I mean, he used to be human. He might understand the necessity of water at some point. Or he could have just been like, I know the falls will be lucrative to them no matter what. I mean, we're going to get into the whole cave or beach schism later on where the caves will provide shelter from the monster, ironically enough. And it'll provide a bunch of other advantages. So maybe they just thought it was a nice opportunity to introduce this thing, lure them deeper into the jungle, because that's going to lure them deeper to the smoke monster where they can play some more of these games. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Jack Shepard, man of faith? This is the question at the heart of other number seven, and it's once again coming your way from Daniel Brennan, who writes, Last week, Josh mentioned that he thought a great lock moment was coming up this week. I'm assuming he was talking about his conversation with Jack Daniel, you're right, 
uh, after walkabout, it's re- <laughs> was that weird? Sorry, you, just, you jumped on your own question, <laughs> Daniel. You're right. After walkabout, after walkabout, it's really awesome to have such a clear articulation from John about how special the island is and how everything is happening for a reason. Furthermore, I love that this moment exists where Jack seems to be just as much of a believer as John. This conversation looms large over the entire Jack and John relationship that develops over the next 100 plus episodes. Here's where I would uh, take some exception. To, to Daniel's viewpoint, which otherwise I, I love as well. I agree with what you're talking about. I don't think that it's that Jack is as much of a believer as John. I think that this is a moment of vulnerability where he is very susceptible to it, right? Yes. Like this, is a, yeah. this is a moment of like delirium and exhaustion. And, uh, and I didn't get to talk about this enough when you said it. I've never really looked at the Locke and Jack relationship as a father figure and a son. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at that. I think that you, you articulated a really great interpretation of that dynamic of like, uh, you know, that's sort of like the, the tension that ends up existing between them. Like, I'm not going to do things the way you want me to do them, dad. Like, it's like, it's like, you know, it's, it's when you're like. Uh, not quite a teenager, but maybe like you're like a young adult and you're starting to like take ownership over your life and your father is still trying to like get you to see things his way. And so you're resisting that. Like that seems to be sort of like the, the Jack and John relationship, except with a lot more button pushing and dead people, uh, more B O D Y S. Uh, I don't know. My, my childhood was very similar yes, in comparison. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think that it's just this fundamental idea of both parent and child sort of saying, you think you know the way the world works, but it's not. It's my, I know the way that it is. And that's essentially what man of science, man of faith is. Now, invariably, I would say in an, in an ordinary parent-child relationship, the person who has more experience is the one that probably has the, the firmer hold on the world than the other one. But I, I think that it's just very interesting to see what they believe and how their ideals both come together and clash as well and how – Jack sort of, I guess, by the end, realizes that his father figure was indeed right, that all the stuff he rebelled against once he, quote unquote, grew older on the island, he realized that, oh, yeah, all that stuff that dad was talking about was actually true. And I I should have listened all the way back then because maybe things would have turned out differently. I wouldn't be putting white shoes on another father figure. Uh, Other number eight, I feel like we've already addressed. It was the question about what do we think Locke saw when he looked into the eye of the island. Dallin Cerevo wonders if we think that Locke saw the source. Uh, Jordan from Wisconsin asks the question as well. Jonathan Krauss also uh, notes that Locke seems completely unfazed by Jack saying he saw a person that couldn't be here. Locke says, what if that person was really here? I imagine that the smoke monster probably appeared to Locke as someone he knows and is easily manipulated by maybe his father. Uh, So just another theory to add to the list. I'm just going to co-sign what you said earlier, Mike. I thought that you had a really beautiful interpretation of just like, yo, I can walk. The, the like, <laughs> I looked into the eye of the island and it made me walk again. Like I think, like, oh, you know, we need it. We need like a lock inner monologue video now of lock just being like, yo, I can walk. You know, I think like the eye of the island is could you could you could look at it as being as real and tangible as the magic box where whatever you imagine is in it, mm-hmm. there it would be. Uh, oh boy, which I know some people are like, no, there's a box. 
There is oh, a no. box. Ben's magic box is going to be a fun talking point in a little while. All right. Other number nine, live together, lead alone. Talking about the leadership of it all. Jonathan Krauss writes in, Locke and Jack's conversation in this episode about the nature of leadership is so great after last week's episode. I think John Locke probably feels pretty damn special that he gets to give Jack sage advice on how to be a good leader. I think it's also very interesting that Locke says that a leader is someone who tells people what to do. Locke clearly only hates people telling people what they can't do when he's on the receiving end. <laughs> hey, Jack, tell me what to do. Ah, trick question. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, you can't tell me what to do. Uh, but no, I think that uh, a leader is somebody who tells people what to do. And so Locke fancies himself a leader. Right. And so yeah. no, no one gets to tell him what to do. Jack is a leader of men. But I think Locke is like we're equals. Either that or like Locke's just somebody who's not going to follow orders. It is really interesting how I wouldn't say he abdicates, but I think considering where things are going to go to see Locke be like, hey, you're a good leader. Go ahead. We'll fall in line. Uh, Maybe it's because he believes maybe to the point that we just made that he feels like Jack agrees with him. And maybe when they feel like there's a pure schism in values that he feels like, okay, no, I'm, I, I need to be the leader here. I need to make sure that we're on the, that, you know, uh, we're, we're going along the right path. Maybe he just feels like, okay, you and I are simpatico. So if the doctor wants to take the lead on things, uh, I totally understand because we're in lockstep. All right. Unintended. Other number 10, Boone is terrible. A lot of people, a lot of people writing in to, to really rag on Boone. How quickly you guys forget. He tried to save Joanna. He did his best. Uh, but Josh, uh, Josh. I think a lot of people are saying that they, Jack should have left him, but only because it would have guaranteed that Boone would have drowned. Yeah, him Josh B says, damn, Boone sucks so bad. Like him trying to be tough is cringy in the beginning. It's laughing when he goes, hey, I'm talking to you. Uh, Scott Ring adds, the Boone slash thief storyline loses me for sure. Fitzy adds, Boone being the one that steals the water has never really made sense to me. I guess it's his way of trying to be the hero and prove that he's better than Jack. And Connor Howe writes in and says, did Boone just not warn anyone that he'd be going in to try to save, to try to save Joanna? Seems like bad practice for a lifeguard. Uh, so not a lot of respect for Boone Carlisle here in, uh, in, in Lost Down the Hatch. I feel like we missed out on if Boone lasted longer, maybe we would have seen, you know, summers with Boone with him as a lifeguard. Because, yeah, it does seem like he might be one of the worst lifeguards between, you know, being like, all right, uh, lady looks like she's not breathing. Better give her a trach. Look, then- <laughs> I, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep defending Boone. Joanna was very far out there. Boone got pretty far. He got pretty far. She was very far out there. Jack wasn't even going to be able to make it. And I guess to the point about the Gawkers, uh, the looky lose of the Losties, that I'm, maybe he, went he was out going there. out there. Yeah, everyone, everyone would be like, okay, sounds good. Have fun. Yeah, come on. Um, all right, sticking on that note, uh, let's talk about Charlie. Let's talk about Charlie and the, the whole, I don't swim. I don't swim. Uh, which is curious, right? <laughs> Considering in Greatest Hits, the penultimate season three episode, which shows the greatest hits of Charlie Pace's life, it includes the fact that he was the junior swim champion in Northern England uh, and that it's one of his greatest all-time accomplishments. And in fact, he is going to swim down to the looking glass station and drown there as a result. And yet Charlie doesn't swim. So let's try and uh, let's let's do an autopsy on this. Brendan Fitzpatrick writes. uh, All right. So Charlie doesn't swim. 
at least not when there are drugs in his pocket. Took me maybe the second or third time through before I put that together in context of the rest of the show. You'll remember that he says he was a champion swimmer when he volunteers to go out with Desmond to the looking glass. I used to think that was a lie, but it's obvious now it's this instance that is the lie. Uh, And since we're just retconning Mike Bloom, I, I feel fully comfortable retconning the fact that Charlie is strung out on heroin right now and is saying... I would help, but I don't swim. I don't swim. And it's him being, like, terrified. I mean, in a couple of episodes, he's going to be having a huge existential crisis while, like, going through heroin withdrawal about how he feels useless and worthless. Uh, And I feel like this is just, like, feeding that beast here. Um, So what's the status on the heroin? Because I know that— Still got it. Still has it. Still got it. Okay, because I remember last episode, he was basically, like, licking— the remnants out of a bag but is there still stuff left for him to indulge running in? low he's gonna hand it over he's gonna fork it over i believe in the next episode is when he and john Locke are gonna have the moment where Locke is going to present him with his guitar uh if he just hands over the heroin uh and then we get to the moth which is all about his withdrawal okay so yeah so i guess that logic he could be very strung out and he just is completely out of it and says okay the first person i need to run to is jack He's the one that can help. In that case, either way, it's still not good. It's still showing how season one Charlie proved to be, while a comedic effect, fairly ineffective until he ends up, you know, shooting uh, shooting poor Ethan, which is stone cold sober. Sober, You know, it's showing maybe this might be a, a wake, one of the many wake up call moments for him as to like, oh, crap, uh, I could have saved a woman. Considering how strong of a swimmer I am, I would say he's stronger than the lifeguard and the doctor. Yet, because of his habits, he unfortunately couldn't do anything. Uh, that would be pretty heavily on my conscience, though, considering where Charlie's headspace is at. It, maybe it just glossed over him. But I think that there's, like, even a look on his face of, like, feeling helpless. It's like, I can't do it. You know, so, like, you could play it. You could play it back. It, it doesn't bother me that much. This is what bothers me, and we've already talked about. Other number 12. No one else can swim. No one else can swim. Jordan from Wisconsin writes, is Jack the only one who knows how to swim? Everyone else just stands around watching as Jack goes to get Boone. And then as he goes back out to try to save Joanna, Megan Cherry writes, is Jack the only one stupid enough that they all decided to just let him do it? In the wise words of Hermione Granger, Jack has a bit of a saving people thing. Eric Divestein writes in, knowing the character of Jack, I'm honestly kind of surprised that he gave up on Joanna after rescuing Boone rather than either saving her or die trying and then this one comes from josh wiggler on twitter who writes no one helps jack at all what are you people doing get in the water and help are you kidding me she's drowning maybe they're just all like i'll get you a towel jack oh god oh god fitzy notes i feel like saeed at least not helping jack in the ocean was the biggest knock against him so far this season in his eventual MVP status. I don't think. No, no, Saeed can't. Saeed's working on electronics. He can't bring them into the water. Okay. Got a lot going on. Uh, But I will say, here's what I'll say. You ready? Uh, In in the season two finale, a boat is going to be right on the edge of the island, a sailboat, and it's going to take everybody uh, by surprise. And the first thing that happens is Jack Sawyer and Saeed are going to jump into the ocean and swim out to the sailboat to investigate it. So Sawyer and Saeed, swimming, swimmer, experts, swimmers, 
pro swimmers. Sawyer is going to get shot in the shoulder <laughs> at the end of this season, season one, and he's going to tread water long enough to find a pontoon to hang on to. Michael as well. Jin lives in the water. He's an yeah. expert fisherman. He's going to be on the raft when it blows up as well. And he is going to make it all the way back to the island without a pontoon in order to get strung up by the tailies. We've got <laughs> well, swimmers in the midst. Not to mention both Sawyer and Jin also in the middle of the series get, you know, jump off a helicopter and jump off a freighter respectively and are able to make their way back to the island miles offshore. No, Miles comes well. later. Miles comes later. Yeah. Sawyer. Uh, but, no, Miles, I guess, was there at that point. Uh, Sawyer is an expert swimmer. Clearly established. He can, he jumps off a helicopter and swims back to shore. He gets shot in the shoulder and he treads water long enough to live. Uh, but he's also an asshole at this point in time. So. Yeah, I was going to say you could well, forgive he's, him. He's for going to say, "What's in it for me?" What is in it for me? All right, we don't need to keep relitigating this. How about other number thirteen? Waiting for the shoe to drop. This is from Stefan Johnson, who says, "How did you guys, much like Jack, pass over the white shoe in the pilot? The shoe is the first sign of the crash. It plays a large role in this episode, as they are his father's shoes, which he's always trying to fill." Oh, I never thought about that. He's always trying to fill his father's shoes. Very mm-hmm. good, Stefan Johnson. And also in three one six, which comes in season five, there's the storyline of Jack putting his father's shoes on lock to reenact the circumstances of the 815 crash. Uh, I guess I forgot. And look, we had a lot, and we do have a lot going on here as we're doing these podcasts. We're going to miss details, for show as we're going along the way. For shoo, as it were, this time. <laughs> Bless <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you. Gesundheit. Uh, but I do believe you see uh, the white tennis shoe hanging on a tree in the yep. opening minutes of the pilot. So that, uh, I think, speaks to your theory that Christian was, like, vaulted out of the coffin or Mike speaks to mine that the smoke monster is like, ooh, 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 they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here. Oh, these are the people. These are the people. Time travel told me they were coming someday. I gotta get to go. I, I, I gotta, I gotta get to the coffin. I gotta gingerly open the coffin. I gotta wrap my little smoky tendrils around Christian Shepherd. I gotta like very carefully take his shoe off. I gotta throw it on a piece of tree that Jack is gonna sprint by. Uh, and all of this is going according to plan. So I think yours makes more sense. Yeah, this is when Allison Janney comes around and is like, man in black, are you leaving your things for your dolls everywhere? Yeah. I'm going to trip over this shoe. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Other number 14, going down the rabbit hole. Jess Sterling writes in, if Jack is Alice searching for the white rabbit who is his father, then who is the Mad Hatter? Well, should we, uh, should for- we cast uh, Alice in Wonderland with lost characters? We were offering to do that last time, considering Saeed is the treasure cat. Right, it's time uh, to do it. I, I think that, uh, well, I guess if you're going for someone who wears hats, Claire's bucket hat made her an early contender. <laughs> I think she's definitely the Mad Hatter of this episode. That's the Mad Hatter's yeah. hat for sure. Um, I would say the Mad Hatter is uh, Danielle Russo. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, because you're thinking about somebody like stumbling upon people who are already settled in doing something that's a little crazy. That feels like Danielle Russo to me. Yeah, and I think, and I think that Ben Linus is the Queen of Hearts. Uh, ben Linus is the Queen of Hearts for sure. Uh, I would say Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Scott and Steve. <laughs> just, yes, absolutely. Just to give them a part. Um, who else? Who else is good? Oh, the Smoke Monsters, the Jabberwocky. Oh, that's true. We have to beware it. Yeah. Uh, I would say that uh, the caterpillar. 
Who's the cat? Who provides like sage? Got to be Charlie, though, right? Because he's he's the moth that bursts forth from the cocoon. I guess so. Literally, yeah. I guess. But I guess if you're thinking of another character that gives, like, maybe Richard Alpert is the caterpillar. Yeah. Does the caterpillar age? Is a yeah, I don't know. His 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 eyelashes are like caterpillars. They're so thick. Yeah. All right. Other number fifteen. This is from Marin from New Zealand. He's got a critique about Lost that I think is very valid. Marin writes in and says, I just want to share something that has become glaring on my Lost rewatch journey. Lost had a really bad gender imbalance. Only four out of the 14-piece cast are female. Yes, I agree that Kate was a great, strong female character, even from the start. But other than Kate, all the rest of the women are kind of pathetic. In the start, at least. I'm only up to episode six. Sun is in a bad-slash-controlling relationship. Sun is a total airhead, and Claire is pregnant and single. I don't think it would pass the Bechdel test. Uh, Do either of you recall any of the women having any scenes together as of yet i find this pretty glaring on the rewatch have you guys noticed it um yeah, pretty convenient considering we just had a pretty meaty scene with two female characters this episode uh with claire and kate that yes. that was a good one um but i do think that this is i i think that lot again when you think when you when you talk about like who are your favorite characters on on lost there are definitely arguments in favor of some of the women in the cast, but I don't feel like you hear them in like those like top five conversations very often. Um, like Kate becomes fairly maligned by some people. Uh, mm. I love Sun so much. I don't think that she gets talked about in that same way. Shannon doesn't, although there are Shannon stands out there, which I think is great. Uh, Claire, I think like they, you know, they drop Claire for an entire season at one point, right? Um, I love yeah. Juliet. I think Juliet's a remarkable character. I know that she's Joe Garfine's favorite character of all time. Um, but I think when you just think about like popular consensus on some of this stuff, uh, I do think, and, and we talked about it also just in this episode, you know, several minutes ago at this point, uh, about was there like a missed opportunity to explore the relationship between Jack and his mom or, you know, other people yeah. and their mothers. And uh, I do think that this is an area where Lost is not phenomenal. I think that I think that many of these characters come into their own and I think that they're all acted wonderfully. Like the acting is is terrific and it's often the writing that fails them. But I do think often the writing fails them. Yeah, so, I mean, to the point that you just made, I think that the fact that Marin wrote this, you know, six episodes in, I think does speak a bit to the character progressions. I mean, we spoke about this during our pilot recap. We didn't speak about the shoe, but we did speak about this, that with these people come in representing roles and archetypes from what we see looking at a person's ethnicity, gender, and occupation, and we find out so, so much more about them. And this first season, we're still finding out about these people so i would say give it patience that being said i would say across the series run yeah i would say the the more interesting complicated characterization is more heavily weighted towards males than females i wonder if it's at least partially due to the fact that the show is run by two males yeah for sure you know especially back in 2004 when it was less of a conversation about representation in the writer's room or stories being represented and granted lost does have an extremely diverse cast which is absolutely fantastic but i can imagine that it was not necessarily i don't know if you asked uh, if you asked damon and carlton you know what people did you like to write for i don't exactly know how many female characters are making that top 10 list and that's just uh, that's just a matter of preference for them well, I you know, Watchmen has not yet come out, but The Leftovers has, which was Damon Littleoff's other show post Lost, which we've talked about a ton here on Post Show Recaps. If you've not yet watched The Leftovers, 
do it. It's remarkable. And we uh, did really great podcasting here, myself and Antonio Mazzaro, uh, and I miss that show daily. Uh, and some of the very best characters on that show, like Nora Durst, you know, like there's some... Yeah, Lori Mar- Garvey. Yeah, there's like some really... so. And I, and I think that a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of... I think that there was a lot of growth on the part of uh, of Damon. I mean, like the Benjamin Linus character of the Leftovers is played by Anne Dowd. <laughs> I think, like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I feel pretty strongly that that is uh, that 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 uh, that the, the the Patty character is like the the Ben of the Leftovers. Um, Liv Tyler's character Meg is fascinating, especially mm-hmm. in season two. Goes through some some really intense intense stuff and even behind the scenes like Mimi later who is one of the the more prolific uh, prolific directors of the show and was an executive producer through seasons two and three uh there's a lot of uh strong female leadership uh on the leftovers so i think like if you asked uh damon about this today i, I wonder what his uh, his answer would be yeah uh, that i, mean, I think it, that he like, probably learned a lot uh, but it you know lost was coming out in 2004 I do think this was stuff that wasn't necessarily on the mind, and I think it's been an evolution in Lindelof's storytelling, at the very least, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, it's a sign of the times for a myriad of reasons, much like, you know, Hurley referring to Jin and Sun as Chinese. I just feel like there were certain things that might have been taken in a comedic perspective or in a non-offensive perspective that are looked upon a little differently nowadays, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. And I think, like you said, uh, these showrunners have gone on to produce things that do highlight more female characters in really awesome ways. That being said, I I still think that we're going to see some really awesome stuff from these female characters as well. And I feel like even the scene that we saw in this episode between Kate and Claire is a great start to hopefully move on from, uh, you know, what Marin has presupposed about these first six episodes, which I don't think is totally wrong. No. Um, all right. Well, before we start getting to the 23 point section, just an update. Uh, there were no dudes this episode, Mike. Uh, wow. Oh, no- hey, a very little Hurley. Hurley had that one scene that we played in the eight sounds, but that was kind of it for Hurley. No dudes in this episode. So the dude count remains. Uh, we are keeping track of a lot of stuff. Uh, Jordan from Wisconsin has compiled uh, all of the things that we are tracking, has a Google Doc available. We will link it in the show notes, but no dudes to add to the squad this week. Um, all right. How about some 23 points? Let's uh, let's let's give let's give out some MVP points. Let's give some LVP points out for uh, White Rabbit. You ready? Yeah. So just right. to review, uh, considering the two and the three involved in 23 this week, Josh has three MVP points to give to three characters. He wants to say good job to, and I have two MVP points to give. I have three LVP points to get to say that was bad, bad in this episode. And Josh has two to give. So, okay, and just to, to update the tally, which eventually we're probably going to have to stop I, doing. I think, I think after this episode, we might have to, considering just how many minus ones are going to be across the board here. Okay, so uh, this is the tally coming into White Rabbit. Kate is the leader. She's got four points. Lock at three. Jack, Saeed, and the monster all have two. Claire's got one. The Peach Man, Ray Mullins, got one. Seth Norris, brother of Chuck and John, minus one. The Marshal, minus one. Da Bors, minus one. Shannon, minus one. Boone, minus two. Michael, minus two. Sawyer, minus three. Randy, minus three. So that is what we are looking at as we are coming into this. And right away, Jack Shepard will be taking my first 
MVP point, and it is largely because Matthew Fox delivers a really, really great performance in this episode. Some great stuff just coming from Jack anyway, but this is really a, a nod in the favor of Matthew Fox's acting, as far as I'm concerned. I'll uh, hop on your back with that point as well. I think this was a really good episode to unlock some fatal flaws within the Jack character and mainly his uh, his overcompensation for wanting to fix everything and being so emotionally invested in not failing. And he does come around by the end as well. And we'll see, you know, highs and lows that comes with his leadership from here on out. But I would say the Jack Shepard as a leader from this ep- from House of the Rising Sun on is a fundamentally different leader than Jack Shepard from the first few episodes. Even when he was such a big old hero in the pilot, there was still a lot of uh, self-doubt bubbling beneath the surface. But for right now, he seems to be on the right path, and I'll throw him a point for that. All right, two points to Jack Shepard from myself and Mike Bloom. I have the second MVP, my second MVP point to award, and I will give it to Johnny Locke, who he goes out into the jungle. He knows where to look. He puts his little Adams family hand out and grabs Jack and pulls him off the cliff and he sits him down. He says, son, here's the fatherly advice you should have gotten long ago. Things are happening out here and it's a special place and we're going to need you someday. And you and I are probably going to go through some shit. Uh, But eventually, I want you to remember the spirit of this conversation because I'm going to get tricked by this monster thing you're chasing. It's going to kill me. It's going to get me killed. Uh, I'm going to get killed and it's going to take my face and it's going to wear my face. And you know how I pulled you off the cliff? You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to kick me off a cliff someday. So I just want you to remember all this. Uh, and for those reasons, and so many more. And again, largely performance-driven. Terry O'Quinn, John Locke scores uh, yet another MVP point this week. Well, I gotta keep Kate in the lead here, so I'm gonna give her a wow. point. Uh, I feel Kate. like Kate, I think Kate did a good job as VP this episode. You know, when Jack she ran away yeah, to his own yeah. flight of fancy, she stepped up. And I think that Sawyer giving her the badge, even though, like you said, it seems like there's a little bit of a of a, you know, a triumvirate going on with her and Saeed and Locke for a hot second. I mean, she is someone who is really taking charge of trying to maintain some sort of course of sanity when Jack was on his own walkabout in a manner of speaking. And I feel like she deserves commendations for that. I mean, I guess she literally gets a star. Right. Yeah, like she, exactly. She, <laughs> she gets a gold star. So she gets a point. Um, all right. I'll give the final MVP point out to uh, give it to the monster man. You the know, monster he, man. You know, he's he's really got Jack wrapped around his smoky tendril of a finger throughout this episode. He's leading him around. He ends up leading Jack to water. And whether that was out of the goodness of its own twisted dark heart or if it was because it was some manipulative uh, con for later or even if it was just an accident. Uh, it leads to water for everybody, leads to the caves as a new location to discuss in the weeks ahead until it conspicuously disappears. Uh, so give it up for the monster man. Uh, I believe he has uh, he has earned his 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 point this week. All right, let's move into the LVP here. And for the first one, I'm going for a shepherd. And look, Josh, I can understand putting yourself in Margot's headspace, but I still am not a fan of how she got Jack to Australia and on Oceanic Flight A15. So I'm going to have to give her my first LVP point here. Wow. I mean, I feel it's harsh. I feel like it's harsh. Then again, I've been like giving LVP people for like the sheer act of dying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so who <laughs> Which am I is to not judge? their fault. No, it's not their fault. And speaking of, I'm going to give my first LVP point to Christian Shepard for dying. Uh, he, he died, and so he loses a point. Uh, but it's also because he's an asshole of a father. Mm-hmm. Just really, really brutally bad to Jack as a kid. 
Uh, so I gotta, I gotta dock Christian Shepherd a point. That that was really awful fatherly advice. It's like, hey, Dad, I got my ass kicked at school. It's like, yeah, well, you probably just didn't have what it takes to deal with it. Like, oh, cool, thanks. Yeah, that's really you should great. Play, p- play possum next time. All right, so yeah. the dock gets docked. So this one. I'm going to give this one to Charlie, but it also sort of meant to be like Charlie slash ghost LVP point for literally everybody standing on the shore and not doing <laughs> anything while a woman was drowning. Should you give it to the greater oceanic 815 survivors then? Like, is there like uh, the gawkers? Should you All just right, like, you know <laughs> what? All, all, all the, yeah, let me pivot right now. I'm going to give it to the gawkers. Okay, let's give it to the gawkers because I feel like to just single Charlie out, uh, you know, I feel like everybody, like nobody got in the water. None of them. They didn't even get their shoes wet. Uh, I and even though he did get his shoes wet, I, I got to take a point away from Boone, uh, just because like he really uh, he really booned it up. He caused such a panic. Well intentioned, uh, but good intentions don't mean everything. Yeah, I mean it's it's very similar to back in Tabula Rasa. I gave him a point because like again he had good intentions in having the gun for Team Transceiver in case you know something should attack, but he has a communication problem. Just tell people. That's what I mean. If you're such a big businessman, like send a send a memo out. You know, wr slash t uh, water bottles. I, I think that it just his, his lack of a communication is part of like everyone will assume what I'm doing here is just a fatal flaw in Boone. For my last MVP, I'm going with Chrissy, the oceanic ticket agent. <laughs> what? <laughs> Listen, I don't care about your latitude, lady. The dude is suffering. Put the coffin on the damn plane. What is she supposed to do? Lose her job? I mean, this is difficult, but she didn't make the company policy. Listen, Josh, the coffin ended up on there somehow. She didn't need to give that much pushback to Jack, especially when he was in his hour of need. We've both worked in customer service jobs. You got to be a little sympathetic to the guy. She was cold. Cold as ice. But what if, uh, what if she, what if she did that and like, it was, oh man, like, I feel like this is harsh. I feel like this is harsh. Listen, I, I feel like I did not want, what if she endangered her job by doing it? And so maybe she should get an MVP point for, for being like super cool to Jack in the end. I mean, I, if, if I see the secret scene of Joanne, of Chrissy coming home to her family being like, all right, mom, I guess I can't give you any more insulin because I got fired from Oceanic 815. Maybe that would be the case, but the fact of the matter is, I feel like uh, she did not take pity on this man from what we saw, and there's only so much I can string together reading between the lines. I'm looking at things literally here, and I feel like Chrissy gave Jack a bit of a hard time. I would have at least, at least been kinder to her, and I hope you would have been Josh as well, so she's going to get my LVP point here, and I think... I mean, I'm assuming this is the only time she's going to get a point. So I want to be it's going to be very fun uh, when we get much deeper into this. And we like are looking at like the people who are like the random negative ones. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah we're gonna or be or like, the random ones, like the random positive ones, like the peach man, Ray Mullen. is just going to be like number one with a bullet for this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just going to be like, oh, oh, yeah. All right. I remember that while we give like, I don't know how much how many points Horace Goodspeed is going to have by the end of this. All right, let's skip ahead to 4.2 stars, new section that we introduced in the most recent episode of Down the Hatch. We keep talking about ranking these episodes. We don't want to do that completely on our own. We want your participation for that as well. So as a refresher, what we're doing is on a scale of 0 to 4.2, we want you to rate the episodes of Lost along 
the way. We are going to, I'm going to give a score. Mike is going to give a score. Then the scores that you guys are going to send in to us, uh, we are going to average the audience score. Uh, and we are going to average those three scores together, my score, Mike's score, and the audience score, and that will give us the current down-the-hatch scoring for any given episode. I will say that we will not lock these in until the end of a given season. So the season one episode rankings will not be locked in place until we get to the end of season one. So if you have not submitted your episode rankings or if you're late to school with it eventually, uh, you will still have time all the way through Exodus part two and three uh, when we get there. Uh, So this is a shifting document, but I can tell you where we're at right now. First of all, let's give our uh, our rankings for White Rabbit. Um, Mike, I'm going to I'm going to. I'm just going to listen. I gave a perfect score to walk about. I gave a perfect score to the pilot. I gave a 3.5 to Tabula Rasa. Um, but I'm going to give a perfect score to White Rabbit. Wow. Uh, You're such a such a cushy judge, Josh. Here, here's the thing. Like, I think Lost is, Lost is like a near perfect show for me. This is like my favorite show of all time. And I don't know where I would ding White Rabbit. White Rabbit for me is like a flawless episode of this TV show. And there's going to be a lot of 4.2s for me, which is why I cannot be wholly responsible for <laughs> ranking these episodes and why the episode rankings that I have done and the one that I've got coming up soon uh, are, you know, like, th- like, what's the point? I mean, other than it's fun to write about these episodes and it's fun to put a, a, you know, a list together. And yes, it's arbitrary and reductive, but it's highly enjoyable. But the truth is, I think that there are a lot of like, for me, for my tastes, you know, for my subjective standpoint there are a lot of just like lights out a plus 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 episodes of lost and white rabbit definitely qualifies for for me on on that level all right well i am not gonna be as high as you uh i i try to reserve only you know no uh, somebody's got to be measured here and it's not going to be me so like this this whole exercise for you mike bloom is going to be an exercise in some restraint uh so we we need you to rein me in all right well that's gonna be tough to do i mean i'm not gonna be too far off the mark here for you I'm going to give White Rabbit a solid 4.0. Uh, and as a quick reminder, I, right. gave, I gave Walkabout 4.2, the Pilot 4.1, and Tabula Rasa 3.4. I think I'm sort of looking at these episodes. Uh, I know we sort of talked about the micro versus the macro. I'm looking much more on a macro perspective as to when I'm finished with the episode, how do I feel about it? And this feels like a wholly satisfying episode of Lost. I feel like it really introduced the Jack character very interestingly. It dealt with beats of his character that, frankly, I didn't remember too, too much just because we're so used to Jack, the big, strong leader, that we forget his moments of crisis. It's a great introduction of Christian Shepard and the perennial apparition that's going to haunt Jack. And it has the big, I saw, into the eye of the island scene, which, like you said, is so fundamental for both Jack and Locke's character. So that, along with Live Together, Die Alone, puts it really high up in my book, purely just, I think, uh, docking it for the Boone storyline of it all, and the fact that I think Walkabout and Pilot are two episodes that just sit with me on a much more satisfying basis, just personally, is going to get a four in my book. Okay, so here's where we stand. Uh, A lot of people have submitted their ratings as well. I believe we've got 12 
different listeners who have who have added their their lists their their zero to four point two assessments of each episode. Again, you are all invited to participate. We are tracking who we are getting these from. So if you've already submitted, don't submit again for episodes you've submitted for, and we will be tracking uh, the stars that you throw in our way. Email us these. This is that is. Uh, you can you can get feedback to us on Twitter is totally fine we can find that but for the stars I strongly strongly request that you email us it'll be so much easier for us to track but these are the scores factoring in the audience average again it's a flexible document so this could shift along the way in season one but as it stands walkabout is number one with four point one eight pilot is in second place four point one three. White Rabbit in third place, 3.93, and Tabula Rasa, Tabula Rasa, is in fourth place with 3.36. So them's the score as it stands. Send us your ratings, your 4.2 stars, to downthehatch at postshowrecaps.com. All right, Mike, before we get out of here, how did we do on time? We promised that we'll never podcast any given episode of Lost for more than 108 minutes. How did we do this week? Podcast failure. Podcast failure. Wiggler failure. Mike Bloom failure. We just don't oh, cool. have it, Josh. <laughs> just not, Okay, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right, so if we exceed 108 minutes in any given episode, we spin a frozen donkey wheel that is covered in consequences. Uh, and the consequences manifest in the form of bonus content, whether that's a bonus podcast or a bonus section that we're going to throw onto a podcast. That's the deal. We have a current iteration on the board. Uh, we keep spinning this thing, Mike, and uh, we're both very anxious people by nature, and I think that this has been a huge source of anxiety in our, <laughs> in our is, lives this over the a, past This has been a weeks. terrible mistake, in the best way possible. Ah. Look, this wheel brought us the Walkabout RPG podcast, which I enjoyed immensely. I know you did as well. Hopefully people did out there. But yeah, this wheel has been warmed up. It's no longer frozen. Like, this thing's a cool room temperature concern. Hot how wheel, much, hot how, wheel. Yeah, how much motion it's been used. Yeah, hot wheel for sure. Uh, All right, so we're going to be spinning the hot donkey wheel this week. Just a reminder of what is available and also a modification. Uh, What we've been doing is as we've been crossing items off of the list of uh, the frozen donkey wheel, and currently we've got two things that have been unlocked. We have unlocked the walkabout, which was the lost RPG, and we posted that episode already. We've also unlocked the Lindelof, which is a parody song competition. It's the lost equivalent of the Wandoff. That is unlocked. And by the way, Jess Sterling had written in and said, do the Lindelofs have to be limited to only the episodes you've discussed so far? Here's what I'm going to say to that. Write a parody song about Lost and send it in. Anything you want. Anything you want. If it's a parody song about Lost, write about it, sing it, send it to us, and if it's great, we'll play it. Uh, If it's not so great, maybe we won't. Uh, (laughs) But we will play, we we will drop a Lindelof on you when we feel like we've got enough material for the Lindelof. So, Definitely send that stuff in down the hatch at poshorecaps.com. Uh, to, but to get back on track, as we've been crossing items off of the donkey wheel, we have been replacing them with the skip option. Uh, 
some of you are going to call us cheaters. And honestly, I really don't even care. But we are changing that into full-on push executes. So as we cross items off of the frozen donkey wheel, if we land on them again, we've just evaded the crisis. We've avoided the crisis. We have to be able to do the podcast, guys. If we keep dying on the bonus podcasts, this podcast won't survive. It's yeah. definitely just not going to happen. It's going to uh, be a bunch of angel hair pasta in your feet at that point and very little Josh and Mike. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Like this will be this is how like the this is how down the hatch dies is if we <laughs> if we if we execute a bonus podcast every single time we're dead. Uh so every time we cross one off, we're giving ourselves a push execute. We keep changing the rules and I'm sure this will not be the last time we change the rules, but that means we have three push executes on the board. We are increasing our odds that we will be able to avoid having to owe you bonus content. So just to reset what is on the wheel? Spoke number one is special. That means a special guest comes onto the show with a specific topic about Lost. Spoke number two was the Lost RPG. Now it is push execute. If we land on two, and we landed on two twice already, <laughs> then we will be able to push execute. So come on, lucky number two. Uh, spoke number three is orientation, in which a guest person will come to us, and we will watch or read something inspired by or directly from lost and report back to you either in a bonus podcast or we will add some bonus content to a future episode uh spoke number four is skip which kind of sucks because it means we've got to spin the wheel again and it just heightens the anxiety and that's what we had to do when we landed on two last time and i gotta tell you i was very nervous uh spoke number five was the lindelof that's been triggered it is now push execute so we've got uh number six is also just push execute so please <laughs> the wheel is push execute uh, not quite. It's two, five, and six are full-on executes, plus the fourth is a skip. So come on. Our odd, the odds are in our favor. We're going to be able to skip this week. Let's will into existence. Also, Torbjorn Fraser wrote in and said, can we get video evidence from you guys physically pushing a button of any kind when we get to push execute on the frozen donkey wheel? No! You're just going to have to trust us. <laughs> Take us on faith. <laughs> Come on. We're doing this totally by the book. A hundred percent. All right. And uh, spoke number seven is the question mark. It's a mystery podcast that shall remain uncovered until the podcast drops. But what we have in this spot is going to expire before the end of September. And in fact, Mike, I feel like if we do not trigger it this week or next week, the question mark gets crossed off and becomes a push execute. Uh, we are running dangerously <laughs> it's close. All, it's all going to be a field uh, of push execute. Uh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. That's what I want. I just like I want to I want a frozen donkey wheel that cannot haunt my nightmares any further. And then number eight is follow the leader in which Mike and I will pick whatever we want from the frozen donkey wheel. But we cannot pick a push execute option. Uh, that being said, if we land on follow the leader, that becomes a push execute. And then whatever we choose becomes a push execute. So follow the leader ultimately gets us to two push executes. So this iteration of the donkey wheel is rapidly approaching the edge of extinction. Uh, and I'm just hoping that this week we just get to we just get to hit execute once. I would love to I'd love to be able to have that in our lives. So with that said, Mike Bloom, are you ready to spin the wheel as ready as i'll ever be let's, right, let's look do at it. it it's glaring with push executes and let's see what the lucky spin will provide oh, oh come on! on what'd you get go, come on it's orientation it's oh <laughs> we had to, the deck was stacked in our that's favor that's crazy that sucks that sucks oh that's we're horrible. horrible at games <laughs> 
<laughs> horrible <laughs> games. That's horrible. All right. Well, I mean, it becomes an execute for next week, and now we've got four executes on the board. So if we don't push execute next week, <laughs> oh I'll boy, be, I'll be shocked. Um, all right, orientation, which uh, we will be joined by a guest. We'll do some additional reading or viewing inspired by or directly from Lost. Um, okay, so what what should that be? Um, um, well, okay, I mean, it has to be reading because I feel like it's back to school season, so that feels appropriate. Okay, you know what? Here, I got this. Uh, all right, so this is what we're going to do. I know that White Rabbit gets its name from Alice in Wonderland, uh, but I feel like we're going to get a lot of shots at Alice in Wonderland along the way, and I've never read Watership Down. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Watership Down. Uh, okay. I've, got, I've got a guest in mind who I will talk to about Watership Down, and we'll either do that as a bonus podcast in its entirety, or we'll have a conversation and we'll tack that on to a future episode of Lost. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll try to time that to Confidence Man, because that's when, that's when Sawyer's going to be talking about it's about bunnies. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into it then, and that gives me enough time to read it. Uh, and Mike, I'll absolve you. You don't have to do this. Uh, I will. I will do this one. I will do this one on my own because I already watched too many, too much bunny blood in the animated version. So you go, to- listen. Yeah, you've got your. You've, you've got, you can live your life a little bit. I'm. I'm the one who came up with the donkey wheel idea in the first place. You don't have to die. <laughs> this is your cross to idea. bear. Yeah, I'll, I'll. I'll take this one on. Okay, orientation. I'm gonna read Watership Down. I'm gonna reach out to somebody. Uh, if that person says no, I'll reach out to somebody else. Uh, but uh, I. We, we will have a Watership Down book report a podcast about bunnies at some point in the next few weeks uh how does that sound that sounds great uh i mean look it's gonna be some great actually it's perfect it bridges two episodes of down the hatch so it'll actually be a nice little thing to tide us over until confidence man when yeah we'll find out that hey boone is actually the big bookworm the bookworm, if you will uh-huh. and yeah. uh, sawyer's gonna and i believe isn't it isn't that gonna be the thing that really leads a uh, boone to try to Try to do a farcus to Sawyer about taking Shannon's medicine. I think that sounds right. Um, all right, so we'll see. We'll see how that all goes. Uh, all right, so a, a Watership Down podcast has been promised, or at least a Watership Down segment has been promised. I've wanted to read this for a while, so I'm not that mad about this. This is yeah, fine. I've got a some, good excuse. I've got some. I've got some flights coming up, so this this is workable. This is fine. All right, so that's White Rabbit. Uh, next up, we are talking. House of the Rising Sun. It's been all quiet on the Quan front on Down the Hatch so far. And these are two of Mike Bloom's very favorite characters, Jin and Sun. We are getting the Sun flashback. That podcast is dropping on September 20th. Just a couple of days shy of the 15-year anniversary of The Lost Pilot on September 22nd. So that'll be fun. Good anniversary. Uh, share with us your memories of where you were on 922. Uh, I'm, com- yeah, compile I'm- them for another. I'm so excited for this. I have proved my love for both Sin, Sun and Jin Quan to you before, Josh, but really haven't had a lot of opportunities to speak about it. We've had weird episodes of Jin being a jerk, but also being kind of nice in the same episode, and then Sun getting walked in on topless and showing off toothpaste. This is definitely... Bloom, I, I, I think that you and I have podcasted about this episode before. I'm yes. pretty sure. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, sure. We, we did a double feature on this and in translation because we have the sun episode and then we have the Jin episode in terms of the focus on the flashbacks. Once uh, upon a time, you and I did the Quan cast for Lost Lives in the first iteration of the Lost podcast on post show recaps. If anybody wants to go back there and pull any of the takes that Mike and I had about the Quans so that we could revisit the ghosts from the past, I would not be mad at that. 
Yeah, I'm I personally am really excited. I mean, these two are complete mysteries at this point in the his in Lost, and this is when we really find out about their relationship, and especially as we talked about before, Sun's big secret that apparently Saeed is already into and this is where sun's character strength is really going to start to come into focus and especially her relationship with Jin. it still has to be developed after house of the rising sun but hey it's a start and now that we are post right rabbit we're starting to move into the caves as well we mentioned that charlie's gonna start to be on the long hard road to recovery so i'm excited to revisit this one personally the past two episodes we had were biggins as shown by our runtime, I think this one will be a bit more comparable to Tabu Taboo La Rasa, but Taboo still a lot of fun. La Rasa. I'm looking forward to that as well. Of, of course, we want your feedback. We want your comments. We want your questions for the 1516 Others section. Email us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. I cannot emphasize enough. That is the cleanest way to get your feedback in. You can tweet at us as well at postshowrecaps, at Round Howard, at a Mike Bloom type. All acceptable ways to get your feedback in. I would advise you, I think Tuesday mornings tend to be we we get your feedback by then and you're making it onto the show is, is your best shot if you're getting us your feedback on Tuesday morning so if you're listening to this uh, september 17th if you can get us your feedback for house of the rising sun by then that would be so ideal uh, always a chance that you'll be able to make it if you don't make that deadline but that would be really really great subscribe to down the hatch if you have not done so already postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch for our apple feed if that is how you listen to us or your podcast app of choice you will be able to find lost down the hatch and your ratings and your reviews we cannot tell you how much we appreciate them although we've told you a few times but we really 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 deeply yeah. appreciate them uh so keep those coming it's helping us get noticed by more and more people in the lost community and it's been such a blast meeting new people mike bloom anything else no, I have to go uh, tuck into some dinner. I uh, better start sharpening my 400 knives to make sure I cut into my meat properly. All right. Make sure that you're cutting into your meat properly. And closing us out, since we didn't get to hear it in this podcast, how about uh, we'll go out on a little somber note uh, and we will play a little bit of that hugely beautiful haunting score from Michael Giacchino. Some life and death for you. And we will be alive again in the not-too-distant future with our recap of House of the Rising Sun. Until then, take care, everybody. Goodbye.